That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. We got a lot to talk about NBA playoffs. Peyton Pritchard's going to join us, uh, former Oregon star, former Westland High School standout, uh, probably in the gym right now dribbling a basketball. That's a safe place to uh, bet uh, Peyton Pritchard is when you uh, don't know where he is. But he'll be joining us this hour, talk about the life in the NBA, what he has going on this summer. I want to know what he makes of the NBA playoffs, the finals. What does he know now that he wishes he knew in college? And on that note, I want to ask you the same thing. I put a call out on social media this morning asking for graduation advice. Advice for graduates. Oh, yeah, we'll get to the sports stuff. Who's going to start at quarterback uh, this season at Oregon State? We'll talk about that on today's show. We'll talk with an author. Pritchard will join us. Big Ten has unveiled uh, unveiled a new football scheduling model. Does that matter? Why should you care? I'm a show-me-the-baby guy. Like, let's just start playing the games. Start the the, uh, college football season next week for all I care. I am ready. I am so tired of talking about media rights. I did five different interviews in uh, five different Pac-12 markets this morning talking uh, about what I know on the media rights front. And what becomes evident to me is that there's a lot of confusion that people don't really know how to even talk about media rights, and I don't blame you for it. This is new stuff. Fans should not be having to deal with it, and it's kind of one of the negative byproducts, I think, in USC going to the Big Ten Conference. I don't want to dwell on it today, but I will deal a little bit uh, with media rights, but I'm going to talk a lot about the games, and I want to know about the advice to graduates who are leaving high school, who are leaving college and going into the real world, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? What advice did you get as a graduate uh, as you were growing up? I know that um, I'm full of advice and full of ideas. We've played commencement speeches over the years on this show, ranging from Bill Gates to Kevin Costner to uh, Damian Lillard to uh, uh, you know Kurt Vonnegut. And, uh, you, I wanted to hear from you, though. You've got some life experience. Whether you went to college or didn't go to college, I think you have something to offer in this conversation. What advice are you going to give to kids who are leaving high school in the next 7, 8, 10 days, some of them having their final day of school today, and going off into the real world? What advice are you giving to college kids who are leaving and going into the real world? 503-417-7575. Yes, I'm talking to you. Yes, you. Wherever you may be listening, you have advice to give to these kids, to give to these young people. What one thing popped into your head as I said that? What advice would you give to people who are making that transition into the next phase of their lives? I think we can all uh, serve in that role for each other. 
Um, you know, I know that when I left high school, I was a little bit paralyzed. I was a little bit paralyzed by the thought and the pressure of like this decision that was being made, this college decision that was being made, and how it would impact the rest of my life. And if you think in those terms, it can be really overwhelming. Like you can start to go down that rabbit hole of thinking like every decision that you make, like where I go to college is going to determine uh, my spouse. It's going to determine my job. It's 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 the step before the step before the step, and it can become a little overwhelming. I mentioned uh, earlier that I put this out on social media. I'll give you some of the advice that my followers on social media have offered to young people, but I want you to weigh in. Let's have a conversation about it. Wherever you're listening, 503-417-7575 is a number. What advice would you give to high school kids who are going off to college or going off to a career or college kids who are graduating and going, what now? You weigh in, you tell me. Dave on Facebook says, discover your passions and then figure out how to earn a living with them. And then you'll never have to work a a, a real job. Recognize what you're passionate about and recognize that that may change over the years. I think that's really interesting from Dave. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying. I was really overwhelmed leaving high school because I didn't have a parent who had been to college. My My dad signed with the New York Mets. Out of high school, he was 17 years old. My mom did not go to college until later, and she became a nurse. She was kind of that reentry student. After uh, us four kids got out of the house, she decided to go back to school. And I was looking around. I didn't have a lot of help in my own household, and I was a little overwhelmed at the fork in the road. And I remember standing there with multiple college decisions. Uh, I had been accepted to a few schools. I was a little bit uh, paralyzed, didn't really know how to pick them. It was almost arbitrary to me in that time. It felt so arbitrary. And to that point, you know, your life from kindergarten and elementary school and high school feels very structured. And so one of the things that I tell college kids and high school kids who find themselves at a fork in the road is I tell them, do not be afraid if you don't feel like you have the decision or you know what's next or you know what to do. Uh, My life is a little bit like the Forrest Gump movie. It just kind of took turns and pivots, and here I am on radio 17 years later. And I haven't been afraid to approach those pivots with the confidence, even though, I, it, even though I'm unsure sometimes of what the right decision is. I think it becomes apparent to you. The path becomes apparent. And I tell kids, like, if you're one of those people who knows what you want to do, you have it all figured out, great. But if you're not, it's going to be okay. 503-417-7575 is a number. Uh, Julie on Facebook says her advice to college graduates and high school graduates is that jobs and friends will evolve during your life. Remember not to overspend. Don't get in a spot that you have to keep that terrible job. That is a really interesting bit of advice. One of my very first newspaper jobs, my first one out of college, I go to work for this small community paper. And one of the things I immediately was struck by was that there were a lot of I would say at that time I felt like they were middle-aged, but they probably weren't. They were probably in their late 30s, early 40s, and I don't see that as middle-aged anymore. Uh, And there were a lot of people who were stuck. And I remember thinking, gosh, what, what are they so afraid of? And ultimately over like a year or two of working there, I figured out that they were afraid. They were paralyzed and afraid because they were afraid to lose that livelihood. They didn't particularly like being at that small paper. It was hard work. Those small community papers are long hours and sometimes low pay. But they felt a little bit stuck. 
and I think that's an interesting viewpoint from Julie. She's basically saying, don't put yourself in a financial position where you have to keep a bad job. What advice do you have for kids who are graduating high school or college? Let's go to the phone lines. Steve is in Salem. Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. So my advice to a young graduate, especially coming out of college, is travel as widely and as far as you can possibly do so, because later on in life, those opportunities do not exist or they're not as nearly uh, available, and it will change your world and worldview. Yeah, Anna and I had very different experiences. Did you get to travel much out out of college? Um, yes. Well, actually, in college, the school I went to was a small liberal arts college in the Midwest, and they had a phenomenal travel abroad opportunity. And I participated in something called the Global Semester, where we traveled around the world for five months with month-long stays in Egypt, India, Taiwan, and Japan, and then phenomenal. shorter stays in Rome, Israel, Nepal, Hong Kong. And like I say, it, it changes your entire worldview. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting you had that perspective. I envy that. I did not have that available to me, uh, both uh, from a school standpoint and a financial standpoint. It, I had to come home. I didn't have much. I didn't have hardly any money in my pocket to pay a phone bill. Uh, Anna had a different experience. She did travel abroad in school and studied in Florence and traveled all over Europe on the weekends and uh, had that. That's great perspective and great opportunity. I wish I had that. I didn't. So I would say this. I would add to Stephen's point. Uh, that uh, if you have that opportunity, do it. I did not. My uh, the the limit to my financial means was maybe going to Reno, and that wasn't exactly the world. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five is a phone number. Troy offers on Facebook. He says it's not about you. Focus on helping others, and you will find success. Also, networking is extremely important and helpful to move your career forward. A really good point about networking. I didn't do a good job of that, I think, early on. I had some natural connections that were alongside me in the press box. I regret not being, uh, I guess, more friendly, it, I, although it wasn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't that I wasn't friendly. I was probably a little intimidated by some of the longtime sports writers who were sitting to my left and my right. I can remember Ray Ratto of the San Francisco Chronicle and Examiner. He's a phenomenal sports columnist, and he was sitting there, and I remember going, oh my gosh, there's Ray Ratto. I've grown up reading him. Now I'm working at a small paper. He's in the same press box. It wasn't until years later that I told him, I said, you know, Ray, I sat by you, and I was so nervous to say hello to you, but he was always so nice to me in passing. Others were not so nice. They viewed you as competition, but I think Troy makes a good point. Networking, very important if you recognize it, I, I talked to a college graduate just a couple days ago who was taking a uh, a job as a uh, beat reporter down in the South, and she asked me, you know, what advice I would give her, and I would say, hey, when you're in the press box, say, introduce yourself to everybody. Do that networking. I did not. Let's go to the phones, 503-417-7575. Dre's in Portland. Dre's got some wisdom. Go ahead, Dre. Jay, somebody mentioned the travel, and that is so important, the traveling and also following your passion, I, I know one of the, the someone had also mentioned that. But what's also important, in, in my opinion, and what, what helped me and my dad help me with this, is learning how to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Some people do you, don't know yeah. how to do that. Yeah. Tell me that. Give me. Go dive into that. When when somebody says, "What do you mean by that, Dre?" 
learning how to speak up for yourself, learning how to communicate in an interview. I've interviewed a lot of young people coming out of high school, coming out of college, 4.0 students, but they can't talk. They can't communicate. Learning how to advocate, how, how, to, how to pay a bill, how to express yourself. I mean, it, it, it's tough to do. It's a learning experience, right? I mean, it, it's hard, right? I didn't know how to advocate for myself. I didn't know how to talk to counselors when I was young. I didn't know how to reach out for help when I needed help. So, But learning how to do that has taken me a long way. Just learning how to advocate for myself and speak up for myself has been very helpful for me. Yeah, I think it's a great point. It, uh, to me, it's a little bit rooted in confidence when Dre talks about speaking up for yourself. But he's right. Like, nobody will advocate for you like you can advocate for you. Uh, Ron on Facebook says, never stop learning. Uh, Trace on Facebook says, don't be lazy. Uh, good one's there. Steven, I want your advice. All right, you're talking to a high school or a college kid, and you're giving them a little bit of wisdom. What do you say? Uh, first of all, I would say to treat people with respect. Uh, you know, and then if they, because everyone deserves your respect at start, and then if they they fail that respect, then you don't have to respect them, but always respect somebody at the very get go. Um, and kind of go along with Dre's point is to always be able to sell yourself. Uh, no matter what you're doing, whether you're qualified for something or not, if you sell it and you're confident enough in yourself, learn how to talk about yourself. It's a very important skill to have, um, and just to be able to sell it and to sell people on. Whether you're important or not, it doesn't really matter if the answer is yes or no, but as long as you can talk about it and you can talk about yourself, you'll be able to get uh, more things that you want. I love that. And I, I love your idea, uh, your concept about treating people with respect. We had a caller the other day who called in and was talking about just people who are nice to each other and the effort that it takes. Uh, what little effort, and Peter Jacobson touched on it too, what little effort it takes to just be kind to people and, and to help out other golfers on the tour as he was talking about that in his interview. Um, I also think that, that you know, for me, it's, uh, you, you know, something that I probably have learned more recently. I, I've just noted that, you know, it, it's interesting. I think there are, I think it takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to recognize kind of your strengths and weaknesses. I think, you know, some people really struggle to see, hey, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses? We all have them, and we know that. But I, I think, like, one of the things that I would tell young people is that you're going to have weaknesses. You're going to have holes in your game. Just like NBA players, NFL players, college football players will get in the gym, get in the weight room, work on, you know, the, the, you know, the, the worst part of their game, you will often see some athletes – who, when they practice, Stephen, you're probably well aware of this in basketball. Really good, uh, you know, player who is a good shooter, but really struggles in the mid-range game, or struggles with footwork, or struggles with defense. Often, you'll watch them practice, and what are they doing? They're practicing the thing they're good at, and and it's fine if that helps you be good at that thing. But I also think, like, spend some time identifying your weaknesses, being real with yourself. And going, hey, like, you know, this is a journey. I can really work on and improve those weaknesses. Um, another thing, another bit that I would give to people is, you know, don't be afraid to be happy for other people. I have noticed this as well in recent years. That, you know, I have friends, when they have success, 
when Stephen has success, I'm happy for him. When John Strong, the voice of American soccer, has success, he's announced as a broadcaster in the Women's World Cup. He has success. I'm happy for that guy. I'm thrilled for that guy. I have noticed, and maybe it's probably more prevalent in my industry and in media than others, that you know everybody feels like they're in competition with each other, that I do think there is a real reluctance to kind of celebrate other, other people's successes. And I've noted that in recent years. I had a conversation with John Strong, the voice of American soccer, frankly, on that topic. I said, you know, when you have success, I'm really happy for you. And I said, are other broadcasters that, that see you getting that job See you getting that gig. Are they happy for you? And he says, you know, it, it probably takes the fact that you don't want my job for you to be happy for me. And I said, nah, I don't think that's it. Like, you know, I'm happy with other other writers. John Wilner has success. I'm happy for him. Uh, you know, I, uh, I you know, I, Ivan Mizell, one of the uh, great reporters who covers college football, announced just yesterday that he's uh, hanging it up. He doesn't want to write college football anymore. And, you know, I'm happy for him. I'm happy that he's had the career he's had. So don't be afraid to celebrate other people and be happy for other people. See how that comes back to you. Josh is in Vancouver. He's got some advice for graduates. Go ahead, Josh. Hey, John. A, a two-part thing here. So the first part is is uh, young people, particularly young people, need to understand that the real world is not social media. Uh, and that's not the communication and how people communicate there is not really how things always go in the real world. Uh, but in, in conjunction with that, the second piece or the second part of that is, is uh, I think young people today really just need to be comfortable and confident in absorbing um, other perspectives and understand the difference between understanding a perspective and that's okay, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to agree with somebody to understand a perspective. Yeah, really good. That's There's some empathy in there, right? You know, like when you talk about other people's perspective, doesn't mean you have to adopt it. We, I mean, heck, we talk about it on the show all the time. Uh, but you ha- you can step out of your shoes and kind of understand where the other person's coming from, uh, even if uh, even if you don't agree. Uh, I think it's a great topic, uh, Stephen. As I as I talked about earlier, the basketball player who goes into practice, really good outside shooter, shoots threes all practice or works on his game by working on the things that are fun and enjoyable. Does that ring any bells with you? I mean, I've just seen that over the years where I see a player who maybe struggles with free throw shooting, and I'm going, why are they just shooting threes on their own time? They should be at the line. Yeah, no doubt. And I I, I go with that a lot because when I played, you know, I was really good with my right hand. You know, that when my dad taught me how to play when I was in third grade and fourth grade, I was better than the other kids, and he said, well, Stephen, just dribble up on the left side and then go right-handed right to the middle of the court and you'll get a layup every time. So that's what I did. And I did that all the way growing up into high school. Like, nobody knew how to guard it because I was so good with my right hand. I get to college and one of the assistant coaches told me, hey, Stephen, if you don't learn how to go left, you can't be on the team. Like, you, you just cannot play at this level. So I had to work on going to my left, and I did that. And then I couldn't really shoot, and so I worked on my shot, and I got better at that. And it's just one of those things, like, some people don't want to put in the work and some people just want to, you know, just do what they're really good at, which is fine. But I think if you want to get ultimately where you want to go, you gotta, you know, you gotta push the limit a little bit. You gotta do something that is a little bit scary and off the reservation. Like if you're not good at something, and make it, it's uncomfortable. You gotta just try it and see what happens and get better and learn from it. It's the only way you can do it. Yeah, I think that's good, good advice. Be thinking on this topic. We'll revisit it in the coming week or ten days or so. But I'm gonna ask Peyton Pritchard his advice for kids that are graduating high school and college. He's working in the real world now with the Boston Celtics. 
uh, former University of Oregon star, former West Lynn High School star, state champion, again and again, a guy who's in the gym at like 6 in the morning every day, Peyton Pritchard coming up next. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Our next guest grew up in the mean streets of Westland, dribbling basketballs, running hills. His work ethic has become legendary. Dana Altman came on the show not too long ago and talked about it. Peyton Pritchard in the NBA with the Boston Celtics. He's got a lot going on this summer. We're going to talk all about it. Peyton Pritchard joining us. How are you, man? Good. Thank you for having me. You bet. Uh, let's go back to the work ethic. Let's just go get myth and what is true about Peyton Pritchard, 6 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning, whatever time you were in the gym as a kid. Give us the real story. How young were you? When were you in the gym? And, and why were you in the gym? Um, You know, honestly, no 4 o'clock, so we can, we can put that out there. <laughs> put it right out rest. there. Uh, but – I think from a, probably like sixth grade on, I knew I had a, a love for basketball. I played other sports, but I think basketball is my favorite. And um, I would go in before school, work out with my dad um, and my brother Anthony, and then sometimes at lunch and then after. Then obviously I just kind of carried on once I started to figure out things, how to get better and stuff, and then obviously the stories in college and later in high school, uh, most of those are true. Um, but it's the reason why I'm where I am today. Did it was did it feel like work to you? I I know that sounds silly because like there were some some reports like you you know your hands were bleeding and I know it's early in the morning or do you enjoy the workouts? A hundred percent. Now is is it tough? For sure, and it's a grind. But you know I think I had I realized I had a passion for it, and every time I would go in, you know I looked at it as it was part of my journey to make it to where I am today and keep on going so I knew without the work I wouldn't be here so um I knew it was gonna pay off Peyton Pritchard with us uh you know I was asking the last segment advice that people would give to high school graduates and college graduates you know you have been down those roads you're now a professional working in the real world or at least the NBA real world but what would you go back and, and tell kids who are graduating high school and graduating college uh you know about what advice would you give them to athletes graduating high school and college? Athletes or maybe even just regular regular folks? You know, I would I would say to try to figure out your passion and, and dream big and go for it. Whatever that is, I think you should, you know, I think I used to hear all the time people used to be like, have a plan B. And I don't really believe in that. I think whatever your passion is, you go all in on it. And if you fail try again but i think that's okay it's part of life is failing and figuring it out so whatever it is in life you know put put all your eggs in one basket and go for it there were a lot of people watch you guys in that series uh with the heat and of course a lot of people rooting for boston and rooting to see you on the court what was that series like for you guys and falling down behind three zip and then coming back and tying it and uh you know it felt like whiplash yeah it's uh I would say this whole year has been uh, an emotional roller coaster, and uh, that kind of series kind of sums it up for our year. I mean, going down 3-0, battling back, going 3-3, and then obviously we didn't get it done. But I think I look back at this year, and it, it was still a wonderful year, and making the Eastern Conference Finals is, is a, a great accomplishment. But obviously we had bigger dreams and, and goals, but it's always next year. 
when you guys uh, look at that series, uh, you know, and I know that when we watch it on television or maybe even when you were in college looking at the NBA, well, you know, how different is it when you're in the league and you're amid a series like that and you sort of feel the, um, you know, the, the, the pressure and the stage uh, and the spotlight? I mean, we've we played in it so much now. I, I was actually telling somebody that's like, after Game Seven, that was the 14th game Eastern Conference Final that I've been a part of. So in the last, been in the league for three years. So at the time, you kind of get used to it because you've been in it so much. But, um, you know, you kind of can't ride the waves. I mean, one game people think you're going to win the championship. You lose the next game, people think you're going, you know, you're not going to win another game. So I think part of it is just not riding the waves and just being in the moment every game and going out there and competing. Dana Altman told me in the off season, right at the end of the season, he's looking for guys who will get in the gym like you were in the gym and work hard. And he's struggling a little bit to find guys like that. Maybe, maybe kids are changing. I don't know. You're you're not that far out of college, but as you look back, like you know, um, do you think young kids are willing to work for it anymore? I think they are. I think uh, we have somebody, my little brother Jackson Shell said, will will yep. he'll work like that. So looking forward to seeing his journey and stuff. But, um, you know, every coach wants people to work like that. But I also know, you know, coach wants people to work how I worked, but I wouldn't be in the position I am and where I am without my work ethic. So I would like to think that, you know, I put in a lot more time than most. But I know how coach is, and, you know, he wants guys to be consistent and work hard and as every other coach. Peyton Pritchard with us. Uh, three NBA seasons in the books. Uh, you are going to be coming home this summer, uh, June 27th through the 29th, and August 1st through the 3rd, Westland High School Hoops Camp. Um, what what makes you want to participate and, and come back to your hometown? Uh, just giving back. I get to go back home and give back to the same community that gave me so much and, and supported me uh, through this, this journey. And so this is a small thing I can do and come back and, you know, allow the kids to come out and learn and compete and give them, you know, just summertime and just have fun out there. How much, you know, what will you focus on? Or, you know, maybe as you talk to, I think your dad's going to be out there as well, but, what, you know, how what what kind of fundamentals will you focus on? Or is this just about, you know, showing kids, introducing some kids to the game and, and making it fun? Well, I think it's different for every kid. I mean, you know, every kid is at a different uh learning level that some are new to basketball. Some have been playing it for a while. So I think, you know, it's different for each one. And I think the coaches that will be there um, will be able to identify that and, and help out with that. But I think really the biggest thing is just giving them an outlet to come and compete and have fun like I did at that age and go out there and, you know, try to win games and, I don't know, just kind of live. Yeah, you know, it it's fun to watch you play. I think people wanted to see you on the court more. How, you know, how do those conversations go for you as you're leaving exit interview season ends? Do you get a chance to talk to the coaching staff and and figure out where your role is and what needs to happen this off season or is it uh is it, you know, is it business like or is it is it, you know, do you have those talks? Um we've started them. Um I think there's a there's a lot of things in the works, and I don't know what, what the future looks like yet. But um, that's kind of something I just let my agent handle. And uh, but I love I love Boston. I love being a Celtic. Obviously, it's a it's a great organization. 
But ultimately, uh, I think I can play in this league and really contribute. So if that's in Boston or, or somewhere else, I think, you know, that's my biggest goal and dream is just to be a part of that. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, and I think, too, that so much of that is out of your control, right? I mean, if you get caught up in that, it can really consume you. Oh, 100%. I think uh, that was the biggest learning experience for me this year is, you know, not letting that consume you, like you said. But it is, you know, the NBA level is a lot of things out of control. And as a player, you got to focus on just your work. And, and when you do get an opportunity, going out there and uh, doing your best. And so that's kind of what I've just focused on this year. From the outside, Peyton, as everyone else was looking at Boston, you know, there was a coaching change, and then, you know, some assistant coaches are leaving. Damon Stoudemire goes to Georgia Tech, really happy for him. But how much did that kind of turmoil or, or turnover affect you or affect, you know, just the team in general? I, I have to think it, it that stuff matters. I mean, I think it's just a lot of things that went on this year. Um, you know, a lot of – I think we were always – in the news, you know, there's a, so much people like to say drama and stuff like yeah. that, but I think we really handled it, our team, really well. We stayed together, and we actually had a great regular season, great year, you know, made a, a deep playoff run to the Eastern Conference Finals, but like I said, it just it didn't work out how we had planned it, and I think that's – we just chalk it up to that. But I think no matter what, looking forward to the future, the Celtics, if I'm part of it or not, they're going to be great regardless. Peyton Pritchard with us. Uh, again, he will be participating, he and his dad, with the Peyton Pritchard Basketball Camp. Uh, for those interested, uh, I will tweet out a link to it, but uh, uh, a couple of opportunities for you to get involved if you want to uh, see Peyton or participate June 27th through the 29th, August 1st through the 3rd at Westland High School. Um, you know, I know this is a long way in the future, but you ever want to coach? I mean, you're running camps, your dad's in this, like, you do you think you are you'll be around basketball forever? No, I don't. I don't have a desire <laughs> to coach. So I, I tell I tell people all the time. Once I'm, you know, I plan on playing in, in the NBA for for a long time, and you know, giving everything I got. Once I'm done, I think I'm I'm done, and I'll find a new hobby. But I love the game so much, and I give it so much. But by that time, I think I'll look forward to a, a next step in life. Do you think? Because you're such a competitor. Do you think that you have to find something competitive as that hobby? A hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, I definitely got to find something that's competitive, and it's kind of just my nature. I like just competing, and so I'm gonna have to figure it out. But I got a lot of time before then, so that's a yeah. good thing. Yeah, I could see you playing pickleball over there in uh, Westland in one of those parks. In, you know, seventy <laughs> years old, uh, carving exactly. it up. Pay Peyton Pritchard exactly. with us. All right, you mentioned Jackson Shellstad. We're we're going to see him go to Oregon. You know him well. Uh, you know the, we've had him on the show just like you back in the day when you were in high school. He used to call in. Um, he is uh, a lot of people are excited to see him play. How soon do you think he can contribute uh, at Oregon? Right away, right away. I think he'll first day on campus. He'll be a contributor and a you know a, a leader on that on that group and. Um, be a big part of Oregon's future. So I think he's a tremendous player, and he's creating his own journey, his own path, and, you know, hopefully one day I'll be playing against him in the league. Yeah, it was kind of exciting to see Wes Lynn playing against Sierra Canyon and, 
and uh, you know the, some of the best teams in the country and uh, at that Les Schwab tournament. Did you notice that, or were you so immersed in the NBA season that it's hard for you hard. to pay attention? No, no, I definitely noticed. I always, I always kept notes and watched, uh, see what was happening with them, and obviously, great run, went in the LSI, and was super happy for them. Then I actually made it back down for the. I was hurt at the time, so I was able to make it down to the state championship game, um, which was great, even though they didn't obviously finish it. But uh, it was great to go back and support them. All right, Peyton, I really appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, obviously it'll be fun for some people here in uh, in July and August to see you at the camps. So for people who want to get involved, again, uh, Peyton Pritchard coming back home to help some kids at Westland High School. Peyton, hey, thanks for giving us your time. And we'll check in with you, you know, once we figure out what's happening with you and uh, what kind of uniform Perfect. you're going to be wearing. I appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Thanks, John. All right, you bet. Peyton Pritchard, there he goes. Uh, three NBA seasons in the books. Sounded to me, Stephen, like he could be a guy in a different uniform. What do you? Uh, what did you make of that? Yeah, uh, I sounded that way. And you know what? I tell you what, I wouldn't hate to see him in a uh, you know Rip City jersey. Uh, you know, I think he'd be a great fit. Actually, you know, coming off the bench, he talks about you know just wanting to roll, how he can play in this league. I think that he can. You know, he, he's proven that. But with Boston, there's just not a lot of spots to really play. Portland's always been looking for that backup point guard, right? A guy that can dribble, can knock down some shots. You'll be a competitor. I, I think Peyton actually would fit perfectly here in Portland. So, uh, you know, I may I may have heard some things that Portland might be interested as well. So that would be, I think it would be a good fit. You know, even as I look at sort of the rumors in the NBA, which you can only uh, look so far into, uh, there's one proposal has him going to the Lakers for Jared Vanderbilt. Uh, and, you know, does he fit on a team like that? Uh, you know, it, where do you see his role being? Let's start with there. What kind of role can, you know, he's 25. He desires a bigger role. He said that, you know, he's made it clear that, you know, with his agent, his agent is saying, you know, that he'd be open to being traded. Um, he's buried in a lineup that's got, you know, Derek White, Marcus Smart, and others. Uh, you know, where do you see him? Well, he's become such a good shooter, and I think when he went to Oregon, he was a very hesitant. Like he was, he always could shoot the basketball, but he was very hesitant to take the shot. And then when he actually got to Oregon, his shooting wasn't quite there. It was, you know, halfway through his junior year, he became a really elite three point shooter, and that's just gotten so much better as he's gotten to the NBA. So he can always shoot the basketball, which is one thing a lot of people can't do in the NBA. Now, if you can't shoot, you can't play, and he can shoot, so he can play that way. And I've always said he's one of the smartest players I've ever watched play basketball. Like he, the, the guy understands where to be on the court offensively defensively for all you know the fact that he may not be the most athletic guy he's going to figure it out because of how smart he is i think he fits a role perfectly as a backup in the nba as a backup point guard who's not going to make a lot of mistakes he can come in knock down some shots if you need him to he's one of those guys where you know he can get hot and he hit three or four threes in a quarter and really swing a game for you but it's not going to be a consistent you know 15 point not a game a night guy that's just not going to be his role, and I don't think he's. I don't think he's that type of player. I don't think he would even admit he's that type of player. So I think I think he can help a good team coming off the bench and being a little spark plug off the bench, but also being a guy that you know you can give him the basketball. He can run the offense, and he's not going to make a lot of mistakes. Where you see that happen in you know the playoffs, these teams that lose they turn the ball over a lot. You know, Golden State turns the ball over a lot, and that's what costs them against the Lakers. Payton's a guy that doesn't really turn the ball over, so you know I think he can definitely fit in with a good team or even with a team you know that is uh, rebuilding. And, you know, he can be almost that veteran leader who's been around a good franchise in the Celtics and knows what it takes to win this league.
Yeah, I just think he's had some so many great moments, and we saw him with such consistency at Oregon where people said, oh, he, you know, again, people said, well, he's not that athletic. He won't be a Pac-12 star. Well, he ended up being a star. Not only ended up being a star, he ended up being a first-round draft pick. And then he goes to Boston, and people said, well, he'll never play. You know what? He did find his way onto the court, and when he did, he played well. And so now I think he's in a position where he's looking for a roster where he can just fit a little better. And I thought, it, you know, and look, his agent is not being shy about it. His agent is openly saying he's open to a trade. He'd like to be somewhere else. You know, there's a log jam there. And I think Boston, if they're smart, they uh, try to get better and fill another need. But uh, Peyton Pritchard to Portland, let's start that right here. I'll go for that. Leave it here. Get the BFT. Our big splash is next. Good stuff from Peyton Pritchard uh, last segment. If you are uh, interested in the podcast, that interview, you want to share it with friends, family, grab the podcast of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show wherever you find it. Um, the uh, uh, Damian Lillard's future, I shouldn't say the, uh, but Damian Lillard's future is become a daily source of conversation. Our big splash today deals with Chris Haynes, who uh, is a reporter for Yahoo Sports. He joined the Dan Patrick Show, but... Let's play the benchmark. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, we got C.J. McCollum yesterday on first take saying that if he were a betting man, he'd bet that Dame's days in Portland are coming to an end. You got Damian Lillard saying he expects to be in Portland. How about Chris Haynes on the Dan Patrick Show? You know, I, I speak with Dame pretty frequently um, about basketball, about life in general. But, you know, we, we, we talk about he will agree that this is kind of like a, a crossroads situation right here. The Portland Trailblazers have the number three pick. Damian Lillard wants to win. He wants to win now. He wants to compete for a, a title. I don't think he believes that um, – taking that pick and keeping it is going to do them any service in the now. So I think, you know, what the Portland Trailblazers decide to do with that pick will dictate. Well, let's Damian say they Lillard. take Scoot Henderson. If you're Dame Lillard, do you want to stay? If I'm, if I'm Dame Lillard, based off of what he said, if they take, if they keep that pick, whether it's Scoot or anybody else, yeah. if they keep that pick, I think a serious conversation will be had about potentially parting ways. Potentially parting ways, serious conversation. I don't hear an ultimatum. I hear Damian Lillard saying he would be disappointed with that and want to have a conversation. I suspect it's why the Blazers are bringing him into the pre-draft workouts, making him feel included, making him watch players like Scoot Henderson say, hey, look, don't you see how good he is? Don't you think he could also be part of the short term and the long term? Steven, how are you reading what Chris Haynes is saying? Yeah, I mean, it just goes with kind of what Dane's been saying the whole time, right? Like, you know, he won't fully say, well, you know, trade for a player at the third pick or I'm out. Like, Chris Haynes did the same thing. Like, if if the Blazers draft someone at three, there's a serious conversation. But it's not <laughs> it's not finite, right? Like, it's not, it's not an ultimatum like you said. And so it just – it goes back to, you know, Dame, Dame's never lied, right? Like, that's the thing about Damian Lillard is – you can say a lot of things about him, but the guy has never really lied about anything about his future. So, you know, when he says he expects to be in Portland, he probably expects to be in Portland. But at the same time, 
that must mean that he thinks the Blazers are going to make a trade because by all other reports and by his own voice, he they said if the Blazers draft someone at three, he he's not going to be happy about it. So I don't know. I, I just take away that Dame wants the Blazers to draft or uh, to trade someone at number three, and I think he's putting – the, the way Dane puts pressure on it is by doing these interviews and having Chris Haynes go out and talk about it. I think that's the way Dame is going about it. And if the Blazers really do pick a guy at three, I think they're going to call Dame on his bluff and say, hey, man, like, what do you want to do at this point now? I, I just kind of wonder, too, there's something else going on in the background here. We all know that Paul Allen died in 2018. His sister's got the team. Burt Cold is kind of running the team. Joe Cronin is the hand-picked GM who – is you know the GM in name and maybe the GM for real, and you know I I kind of wonder who's making the decision on that front. Like as Damian Lillard is saying, uh, you know essentially here's what Chris Haynes said again. If you're Dame Lillard, do you want to stay? If I'm if I'm Dame Lillard, based off of what he said, if they take if they keep that pick, whether it's Scoot or anybody else, yeah. if they keep that pick. I think a serious conversation will be had about potentially parting ways. See, I I don't see that as I want out. I think a serious conversation will be had about potentially parting ways. And he also My, he also yeah. said that's what that's what Dame said. Like he yeah. said, this is what Damian Lillard said because that's what he's literally said is you know what I don't want to pick at three. I don't want another nineteen year old. So like I don't know. I feel like it's kind of the same thing over and over. But it's I think it's Dame kind of campaigning. Yes. to the Blazers and campaigning to the fans of, look, they need to trade this pick for a veteran player. Like, they have to do this as well. Why won't I he want. come out and say that? Why Like why won't, Why won't? is he sending Chris Haynes and C.J. McCollum as messengers here? Because we've seen what happens in the NBA when guys demand things. It turns out bad. I mean, Kevin Durant, you know, for all the, all the bad things he does by having burner accounts, I guess, like, all he wanted to do is win a championship at Golden State and we'd kill him for it. Like, I, I think Dane just doesn't want to make fans mad and make, the you know, the NBA Twitter crowd say, oh, well, this guy, you know, and make jokes about it that this guy needs help and this guy, you know, he wants, he's demanding these things. I just think, I just think it's more of an image thing for him right now because he has this image of, you know, he, he's so loyal to Portland and all that kind of stuff. I, I think it's really going to be interesting, but I don't hear, like, I kept waiting for Chris Haynes. I want to, I'm just going to play this. Dan Patrick asked him if they keep the pick, if they make the pick at three, you know, does Dame want out? If I'm, if I'm Dame Lillard, Based off of what he said, if they take, if they keep that pick, whether it's Scoot or anybody else, yeah. if they keep that pick, and I want to be traded. <laughs> you know, no, that's not what he said. I think a serious conversation would be had about a serious conversation would be had. You know, now now could it be like what we talked about yesterday? Dame actually trying to help out the Blazers because he has so much respect for them. Maybe and that, the fact that he doesn't want to hurt their leverage maybe maybe he's got a gentleman's agreement maybe his agent has a gentleman's agreement we will not ask for a trade we'll only go as far as to say we want to have a serious conversation you know it's like my my seven-year-old daughter uh, uh you know she'll be doing something i don't want her to do and i'll say you need to knock that off and then i'll go one two and then she'll look me in the eyes and she'll go dad nothing happens at three <laughs> It's like with my kids, you know, the little one punches the big one, and I'm like, hey, don't hit your brother, and then he pushes him, and I say, well, don't hit him. He goes, I didn't. I pushed him. 
Yeah. Like it's it's the technicality. Like Dame yeah. Dame wants out, but he won't technically ask out, so he's yeah. never technically going to do it. But he's going to have these serious conversations with the Blazers. Yeah, when when your dad gets home, there's going to be a serious conversation. The threat of it feels worse than the reality of it. Like what you know, a serious conversation with Damian Lillard would be a conversation going, "Hey, Dame." Why don't you pick up the phone and lobby for other NBA free agents to come to Portland? Shouldn't they be having serious conversations already? Like, that's, yes. like they should already be doing this. They should have been doing this for years. Every conversation the Blazers have should be a serious conversation right now. Hey, we were really bad. We're embarrassed about how bad we were. Let's have a serious conversation about getting better at every position. That's the, the end game is that both the franchise and the player both want things to be better next season, but – the reality is, like, here's where, again, I got, you know, we're going to disagree on this, Stephen, but I come back to ownership. And if you've got a Phil Knight character, Alan Smolinski, you have a winner and a winner in the ownership chair. I have more confidence if I'm Damian Lillard that these guys can pull off anything. Instead, you've got the sister of the deceased former owner, and you got his college roommate. In that seat. The way you put it, it's hard to argue with. Right? <laughs> oh, uh, come on. I mean, but yeah. but also with you know with Jody Allen, Burt Cold in, in charge, Dame can kind of do whatever he wants. Can Dame pull a power move with Phil Knight? I don't know that he can. Phil Knight does not like to be played. And that I, that, that I think Dame may not like. I can tell you that he is not to be trifled with. I have uh, I have heard many stories. Very fair, very cordial. Do not cross him. Do not play him. Uh, you know, he does not like to be played. Uh, keep an eye on this. Punch It Audio is coming up. We got great sound from all around. We'll talk some NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and beyond. You got the bald face truth. I appreciate you being here for this radio show. We are statewide, and you're along for the ride. We had Peyton Pritchard on last hour. In hour three, we will have on an author who's written a book about baseball and storytelling tell you more about that as it approaches that's coming up in the five o'clock hour uh a lot to uh, talk about on today's show punch it audio is a great opportunity to catch you up on everything that is going on let's do it best sound we interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the bald face truth headquarters Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. The Vikings are cutting Dalvin Cook. Why are the Vikings cutting Dalvin Cook? Here's Tom Pelissaro talking about it. Punch It. Uh, number one, a culmination of several months of both the Vikings and Dalvin Cook trying to uh, sort out his future. And number two, it's part of the broader plan that uh, Kevin O'Connell and Kwesi Adolfo Mensa have referred to as the competitive rebuild. Competitive rebuild by giving up good players. Getting uh, getting uh, an opportunity to release it. Now, I've, I've seen several coaches, including the coach in Miami, who has come forth saying, uh, you know, I definitely would be interested in. Made the Pro Bowl in each of the last four seasons. Rushed for more than 1,100 yards a year. Uh, really good player. Doesn't it scream to you that, you know, we talked about this last year, the Vikings win 13 games, but no one took him seriously. Like, 
maybe he's just not as good as we all think he is, and the Vikings really aren't that good last season, so they're almost rebuilding on the fly because they don't think that they're very good. I also think that there are a lot of teams looking around the league at some of the more successful franchises like Kansas City and going, look, um, you can't have a player that's going to count $14 million against the salary cap at running back. And they also re-signed in the offseason Alexander Madison to a two-year, $7 million contract. And he's been a fill-in when Cook was injured. So i just kind of wondering if the movement in the NFL right now is away from star running backs unless you have an absolute star. But it is a strange message from the Vikings. And a lot of people kind of wondering, like, you know, did they just need the money to sign Justin Jefferson or – could they have just restructured Cook's contract? But um, if you're a Vikings fan, you're entitled here to go, this is just the Vikings. But is Madison good enough for them to go, all right, we can give up on Cook, who provided some key moments for us last year? I don't know. Offense is going to be different, but it's going to be without Cook, apparently. Robert Robbins, the Arizona president, went public yesterday on the Paul Feinbaum show. Very disappointed with this interview, by the way. Feinbaum, it was clear to me that Feinbaum had not done his homework. Did not He did not read the piece that he was asking Robert Robbins about. But nevertheless, Robert Robbins did say he was very confident in the 10 schools in the Pac-10 Pac staying together. Punch I have been very confident. Uh confident in that we were all going to stay together in the Pac-10, uh, the 10 of us. And then, you know, the question will be, do we uh, retain the name Pac-12 and add a couple of schools, or do we just uh, go back to, to Pac-10 like it was when I arrived in Stanford in 1989? But I, I've always said I was very, very confident we would get a deal. Uh, and I am I am really uh, happy that uh, that it's uh, going to be coming soon. I don't know exactly when, but I I would say it's a matter of weeks. I've been doing uh, interviews all day today. He said matter of weeks there. June 30th seems like an interesting date in the conversation for the Pac-12 conference. I'm calling it the Pac-12. June 30th, obviously the cutoff date for San Diego State to inform the Mountain West Conference it's leaving. If it waits till July 1, the exit fee doubles from $17 million to $34 million. That's important. Also, tomorrow, agenda item, Washington State Board of Regents. Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, is asking for uh, the authority to sign. So he's asking for the signatory authority at Washington State, meaning if there's a media rights deal, he can sign on the dotted line. He does not need to call his regents together for an emergency session. And in fact, in the minutes, it uses that language. It talks explicitly about media rights. And this is why he needs the signatory authority. I think Robert Robbins and the other presidents as I have told you for the last eight or nine months, have never wavered. They have believed all along they're staying together. I think there's some important reasons why, but, you know, they, they still need to get the deal. And he's saying a couple of weeks, okay, let's go with it. 
because the Pac-12 is telling me late spring, early summer. Now, I had to Google it, but the summer solstice is coming up on June 21st. That's when late spring turns to early summer. June 21st is 13 days away. Adam Silver was asked if the Saudis have tried to buy an NBA team. Oh, I'm interested in this. NBA commissioner, punch it. Have the Saudis looked to invest or buy an NBA team? No. What would Not you... that I'm aware of. I mean, they, that, that, they certainly haven't come to the league office. And under our rules, um, you, an individual can only buy an NBA team right now. You can um, a fund, and that's what's happening here. Okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's called a sovereign wealth fund that's investing in the, in the PGA Tour. But we allow funds to invest in teams but not control teams not to have influence over teams so to 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 own an nba team there has to be an individual with a certain percent of the team to control it i'm kind of wondering you know is he open to saudi investment money is he just saying that sounded like either they have been interested in he just said no you need to have one owner or yeah or they're they would be okay with it i wanted the follow-up from dp there that's might, all have I have. To, might have to ask, you know, what was next? Really interesting. Moving on, WCPO in Cincinnati. Alex French was interviewed about catching a top prospect's home run ball. Ellie De La Cruz, top baseball prospect in all of Major League Baseball, instead of selling the ball, Alex French gave the ball back to Cruz. Got some pictures with him. And, you know, did the non-American thing here. Punch it. So here's how it happened from my perspective. I'm, I'm, I'm out behind the right field foul pole. Ellie De La Cruz launches this home run 458 feet. An absolute no-doubter. Lucky it stayed in the ballpark. Lucky that is for Alex French. That's who caught the ball. He's a senior at Moeller High School, a linebacker on the football team at Moeller. Almost looked like a linebacker uh, fighting through his friends to get that ball. I talked to him about it right after. Here's what he said. So we were up at the top, and I didn't think it was going to come because we were at the very top. And then when I saw it, like, coming, I was like, oh, oh, crap, it's coming. And then that's when I put my hands out, and it hit my hand. And at first I thought I caught it, and then I saw it bounce away. So I started going, trying to go catch it. So, yeah. What does an Ellie De La Cruz home run feel like on your bare hand? That's crazy. It hurt. It hurt a lot. Right here. That little bruise. There's a bruise, I think. Got the bruise to show for it. Congrats to Ellie De La Cruz on that homer. Congrats to Alex French on catching that homer and getting the ball back to Ellie. Should he have sold the ball, Stephen? Did he do the wrong thing or the right thing there? I mean, I would sell it. I would. But, I mean... Because, you know, Ellie De La Cruz, if you don't know about him, John, like he is the top prospect in all of baseball. He is a lot of hype around him. Um, like, if he, if, you know, I don't know how much that ball sells for because it's just his first home run ball, so he wanted it back. But, I mean, I would have wanted some money for it. It sounded like all they got was some gear. Him and his him and his boys uh, posed for some pictures with De La Cruz and posed for some pictures on the Reds' Twitter account. I feel like I would ask for some money. I, I think I would go for I, – I want some season tickets. How about that? Yeah, like I feel like I'd want more than just like a signed bat or like I, signed baseball because I got some baseballs and stuff signed by him. But, yeah, I'd want, I'd want at least something. There you go. There's a big, uh, there's a big explosion with uh, 
baseball cards and memorabilia surrounding De La Cruz anyway. People are hot after it. Look for a lot of fraud to pop up in that front. Greg McElroy talks about Bo Nix. He was ranking the Pac-12 quarterbacks. Caleb Williams, Michael Penix Jr., Cam Rising, Bo Nix, Cam Ward. He put Nix number four on his list. He explains why. Punch at it. number four, because of the transition, I have Bo Nix of Oregon in at number four. Now, Kenny Dillingham is now the head coach at Arizona State. He was formerly the offensive coordinator of the Oregon Ducks. Coordinator change is a big question mark. I mean, will Bo Nix continue to play at a really high level? Last year, he was off the charts. His first couple of years in school, not quite as efficient. Now, you look at what he did. 29 passing touchdowns, 14 rushing touchdowns last year, accumulated over 4,000 all-purpose yards. He's perfectly equipped to run the offense that's going to be used there in Eugene, but we have at times seen some dips and some elevated levels of production. There's been a little bit of inconsistency. Now, I think that inconsistency is behind him. I really believe that. The Auburn Bo Nix is not the Oregon Bo Nix. Two very different players. He's more confident, and I thought he looked really comfortable last year when healthy, but did get a little banged up towards the end. I love Bo Nix. I love all four of the top four quarterbacks in the Pac-12. So I think, look, two through four, you want to have Bo Nix two, you want to have Michael Penix four. I got no problem with that whatsoever. I happen to think, though, with what Penix does for his team, with what Cam Risen means to his team, and what Bo Nix means to his team, I have Penix, Rising, Nix. No way. That, like, I, I just don't think that you can put Cam Rising in front of Bo Nix as a talent. What he means to his team, or are we ranking the quarterbacks? Because if you're ranking the quarterbacks on what they mean to their team, for me, it's Caleb Williams at one, it's Cam Rising at two, Michael Penix at three, Bo Nix at four. I'll buy that if you're just saying what they mean to their team. But if you're telling me to rank the quarterbacks based upon how good I think they are, I'm going with Caleb Williams at one. I think Michael Penix Jr. is right behind Caleb Williams. It's a very close one-two. Then I have a little gap and Bo Nix. And then I might not even go with Cam Rising at four. I might not even go with Cam Ward at four. I might look at a Jaden Delora if he can get more consistency, a Dante Moore if he is all as advertised. You might uh, be able to look into other corners of the conference too. There are a lot of good quarterbacks in this conference, but I'm not putting Bo Nix behind Cam Rising if this is about who is the best quarterback and i believe he was ranking the best quarterbacks in the uh, in the pac-12 and he put bo nix firmly at number four based upon the departure of kenny dillingham and that is the question i have for you john is how important is that gonna be because we've seen bo nix struggle when he was at auburn but he looked so good last season with kenny dillingham like just to not have that and that was one of the reasons why he came to oregon right was because of dillingham like when, with him gone and now Will Stein in the mix, are you expecting any type of drop-off from Bo Nix? Any type of, you know, um, like start of, the, start of the season where he may be struggling at the start of the year a little bit? like, Or is it just going to be such a smooth transition to the new coordinator? I think Will Stein and the group of wide receivers that Oregon has this year, you see the spring game? I mean, there were two dynamite receivers on each side of the ball, and I just thought to myself, oh, my gosh. Like, Steven and I could call the plays. Ball's going to be in the air. And I also like that Bo Nix is that experienced and he's coming back. It really, I think, helps Will Stein as a first-year coordinator at Oregon. 
because I think, you know, look back to the Holiday Bowl last year. Dan Lanning came on this show and confessed that Bo Nix was calling the plays. And he, he let him call the offense. And I thought, you know, you know, here they are at the end of the game. Bo Nix calls a play and, and wins the game. And I, I just think it's such an advantage for Will Stein, the offensive coordinator, to have a talent like Bo Nix coming back. There's a couple other thoughts I had also was, you know, um, where does DJU fit in this? Like, could he be in the top five at some point in the end of the year? And then you talked about Caleb Williams, Michael Penix Jr. as a clear one-two. And Greg McElroy said you could really put two through four and really go any order. Like, you have Penix a lot higher than Bo Nix, and I think he does. Like, what's the difference between those two, and then where does DJU fit in this whole thing? I think Michael Penix Jr. is going to be a fantastic NFL quarterback. I mean, he was the passing leader for most of the season nationally, and he's coming back. He had 31 touchdowns, 4,600 yards. He He's just dynamite, and, and he's a dominant player. But... I think Bo is not going to be as good a pro prospect as either Caleb Williams or Michael Penix Jr. I think most scouts are going to have Caleb Williams as maybe the number one pick in the draft, and I think Penix is a first-round pick. I don't think Bo's a first-round pick. But that next group of quarterbacks, to me, is led by Bo Nix. So I have him third. I think Cam Rising is not going to have a great NFL career, but he's a really strong leader. Cam Ward, I wonder if he's hit a ceiling. Dante Moore at US, UCLA, I don't know. Jaden Delore at Arizona, inconsistent. Can he fix that? DJ Uyangalele uh, could be good. He could be in that next group, but do we know he's going to start yet? Ben Gulbertson might be pushing him, and Aiden Childs might be pushing him for for uh, you know starting time. And then there, you know Arizona State's got a question: Is it Drew Pine? Is it Jaden Rashada? Is it somebody else? And so I think. Um, Right now, I would say I'll put Rising behind Bo Nix, firmly behind him. Shador Sanders may be in that next group with Cam Ward and Jaden Delora. To me, DJ, I need to see more. And I kind of think DJU's contribution at Oregon State is not necessarily going to be, he's not going to be the kind of quarterback that comes in and goes out and throws for 353 yards and five touchdowns and wins you the game. Like, I'd love to see that if I'm Oregon State. I think it's more that he fits into what Oregon State wants to do, which is run first. He's capable of beating you with his arm. But I think what they're really looking for at Oregon State in a quarterback is a guy who can make some big throws when he has to make some big throws, who can hurt you downfield so you can't focus on the run game. You know, everybody, every season that Jonathan Smith has been there at Oregon State, and this makes it even more remarkable, you know, Oregon State had the best run game in the Pac-12 conference last year. And they had the best run game with every opponent knowing they couldn't throw the ball. I mean, wrap your head around that. So all they need out of DJ is a guy who can make some big throws, hurt you down the field, manage that run game, don't turn the ball over five times, you know, like Chance Nolan did against USC. Don't throw pick sixes like Nolan and Gulbrinson did against Utah. And, you know, I think you're going to be okay. But I don't see him. I, I see his mo- role more like Cam Rising at Utah. Make some plays, manage the team, be a leader. It's almost like if DJ Uyunglele is throwing for 350 yards, something's gone wrong, right? Like that that's not what Jonathan Smith wants him to do. They want to run the football, and they're going to be winning games because he's throwing for 200 yards, 
but he's also going to run for 50. And then Damian Martinez is running for a buck 25 and a touchdown. Like, I, th- I think if he has to throw the ball a lot, I think something's gone wrong with the offense. Uh, you're, you're probably right there. Or the defense has just put, you know, 10 on the line of scrimmage and said beat us deep, and, and he's done that. Uh, stick around. Anna will pop into the studio. Uh, plus, uh, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk to an author who has written a book about baseball. Eric Gray will be joining us. He's got a local appearance coming up here in the Portland metropolitan area. He's going to be tell some baseball stories in the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. That Bill Walden documentary getting a lot of run. A lot of people asking me about it. I think a lot of people in Portland are proud of it. First two episodes aired on ESPN this week. Second two episodes next week. We had the the uh, the guy who uh, made the documentary on the show. He was really good. Anna's popped into the studio. Um, Anna, how you doing? Great. What'd you do today? Field day at school. Yeah? What grade are you in now? <laughs> I'm a 15th year fifth grader <laughs> good for you uh you took your dad your 77 year old mm-hmm. taiwanese dad over there yeah put him to work and it looked like he uh he was filling up buckets yeah. with water yeah yeah he didn't, have, he didn't have the greatest energy today like you know he's a little up and down right now big journey from taiwan all that and so he mostly needed to sit and i was like well if you're gonna sit here you may as well fill water buckets for the water challenge you know you may as well make yourself useful Good for you. Yeah, Put he had a work. good time, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to ask him. I yeah. think he came home and he went went for a nap. The thing he yeah. marvels at is how much fun American children have at school. Yeah, that's what he's witnessing. He told me that. He said, "Do they ever just line up and have <laughs> teachers instruct them?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And he says, "In in Taiwan, the kids will line up." And the teachers will be talking to them, and the kids are not jumping around, celebrating, jumping rope, you're running relay. He's going to think field day is how how Americans do it. No wonder we're falling behind. Oh, my gosh. You know? Yeah, but our kids are happier, right? Are Maybe? they, though? I don't know. Or do you give them a little joy, and then they start, you know, you know really thinking about it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I want to go to the phone lines. Uh, Paul in Northeast has called in. I believe it's the mayor of Northeast Portland, Paul Knowles, who has called in. Paul, what's up, man? I'm doing well. And you? How old are you now, Mr. Mayor? I'm 92, and I got stuff to do, John. That's the way it goes. (laughs) I love it. How you doing? What's up? What's on your mind? John, I had a good night last night. I was at your favorite ball club, uh, Ron Tunkinfield, they honored me. Black History, I mean, uh, Juneteenth uh, celebration. Had me on the big screen, made a big announcement, read my bio. You know, that I, I thought about when I listened to your program uh, about how beautiful the field is out there. It's really, really beautiful out there. So we had a good time. They honored me and got me in the clubhouse, got me some food and stuff. And so I got to watch a baseball game. First one in about 50 years, you know. Did, did you throw out a pitch? Did they let you throw out the first pitch? No, they wanted me to, John, but I knew it would land about four inches in front of me. So <laughs> <laughs> That's why I told them, I said, I can't throw out the first pitch, okay? They said, okay, okay, we're going to do whatever you want. I says, just let me sit right here if you want to put me on the big screen. So they did it from the, the grandstand, you know, and they, they had a little uh, – 
they had asked me to send some pictures of my community service, and they put that up, and and it, it was nice. It was nice. It was nice. But uh, the really reason I called is uh, episode three is coming up, and yeah. uh, Curly Fuller and I, other gentleman that uh, my neighbor, he's never missed a game, an open game in the fifty-three years. Uh, I asked him to come when they asked me to be on the episode of. Uh, uh, the, the story about Bill Walton, the luckiest guy in the world. And we're going to be, Steve uh, texted me the other day, say, Paul knows you're going to be fairly in episode three. Oh, wow. And so we're, put, we're putting on a big um, watch party at um, a location in Northeast Portland, and it's free for everybody. You know, the Alberta Abbey Place, 124 Northeast Alberta. And uh, we've invited the ex-Blazers in. We're going to have a Q&A. And uh, it's just going to be nice. It starts at 5 o'clock, of course. But that. they came and got all of my pictures. They sent two crews out twice from Chicago, videoed everything that I had about that day. And the Blazers interviewed me and, and Curly Fuller for a couple of times, you know. So it should be good. So I'm inviting everyone to watch this because – they're going to show pictures of 1977 in the streets. They're yeah. at Geneva's the party. Hey, let me ask and you. Gonna, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. And you're going to see yourself in 1977, <laughs> June oh, 5th, man. Trailblazers victory party. And that's what happened that day. Mr. Harry Glickman was sitting inside the building with his daughter and his wife and uh, John McKinney. They were they, they came to the party. Uh, Maurice Lucas, Lloyd Neal, you know, the guys came over. And uh, so we had a good time that day. And they decided to do a story to tie it with tied in with Bill Walton's story because that was Bill Walton's hangout. You know, it was my restaurant lounge, Geneva's restaurant lounge. Can I ask you a question here? I want to go yes, back in I want to go back in time and for people who don't know, uh if you see Paul, he's got his trademark hat on all the time. He's always dressed to the nines. But let's go back uh let's go back to nineteen sixty three. You you move to Portland, the cotton club you transform it into one of the most popular nightclubs in town. I'm looking at a photo right now of you in Geneva. What a stunning couple, by the way. And Sammy Davis Jr. Wasn't she fine? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sammy Davis Jr. Yes, he visited the club one night. Geneva went to an uh, after party after he had a concert downtown. And she... Uh, the guy came over and says, excuse me, ma'am. I says, Sammy, I'd like to talk to you. She, she says, oh, tell him to come over. And he says, uh, ma'am, Sammy, don't come over. She says, oh, well, tell him hello. You know, these are my girlfriends. I'm with them. And pretty soon Sammy came over. And before he could open his mouth, she said, Sammy, it would be so nice if you could come to my husband and I. We own a nightclub. And it would be nice if you could come because can't anybody afford your tickets for your concert if you could just come over and spend some time. And he says, I might come over. And she said, oh, okay. Geneva ran. She got the children the door. She came in to see me. She said, "Honey, honey, honey, Sammy, Sammy, say he, he might come over." I said, "Sammy, who?" She said, "Sammy Davis Jr." I said, "Sammy's not coming over here." She said, "Well, he said he might." About an hour later, Sammy walked through the door. I said, "Mr. Wow. Davis, welcome, welcome." He said, "You got any food?" 
I said, Jesse, let me introduce you to my chef. So I got him to my chef. I said, take Mr. Davis some food and don't charge it. So I ran back and back in the show. I said, honey, 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 Sam is here. Sam is here. She looked up at me with her eyes and said, Sammy who? <laughs> <laughs> He got up and sang three or four songs with my band and stayed until about 4.30, signing autographs and taking pictures of everyone. That's when they that camera where you snap and, you know, it rolls out and you shake it, what they call Polaroid. Yeah, yeah, that was a Polaroid camera, you know, and everybody got a Polaroid picture of Sam Davis. <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love that. You, yeah, that place must have been a magnet for celebrities. It was because what happened, John, if you came to town, you had a concert downtown, you know, you want to do something after the concert. So everybody knew the Cotton Club, you know. So then one day the cab pulled up and this big white girl got out. I thought, oh, my God, what's she doing over here? It walked over. She came in. I says, welcome, welcome. How are you? I says, Mama Cass. How are you? She came over after they had a concert downtown. Wow. <laughs> I showed her inside and she watched the show. Yeah, they're the Righteous Brothers. They had a show downtown. They came over. Anyone that was in town, Joe Lewis came to our club. I got pictures of these people. You know, Joe Lewis came over. Yeah, so. What was Joe Lewis like? So he's in the club, you know, and all we know is Joe Lewis in the boxing ring. Okay, Joe Lewis was so the way I got him, got him over there. I looked, I was at the bank and I looked across the street and Vicky and Aki Harris, they owned the nightclub up, up, up on Barbara Boulevard called the Three Star. I said, Vicky, Aki, Paul Mahomes. He said, hey, how you, Paul? I said, what are you doing? They said, we're trying to get to the gas station. We ran out of gas. And I said, who's, who's driving the car? They said, Joe Lewis. I said, Brown Bomber? They said, yeah. So I went over and we started pushing the car. I started helping to push the car. We were about two blocks away from, from the service station. <laughs> we got, I said, I said, Vicky, why don't you guys, he was in town for a fundraiser. I said, yeah. Why don't you guys uh, bring him over to the Cotton Club tonight? So they did. And uh, that was it. And he sat there, you know, and my wife came in. I got a picture with them sitting up there and watching the show, you know. Uh, Etta James, you know, <laughs> Mom, she, she's one of the best. She she started there at the Cotton Club. And Big Mama Thornton, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. That was her, that was her shows back in those days. And. We had groups that went on to become national fame, and I lost them one day, and then I was watching Sesame Street, and they're on with Big Bird, the three little souls. They were right here from Portland. I said, you made it when you get on with Big Bird. You, you know, you, you, you are no joke. So, And they had about two a month, last month, they had a Cotton Club Revisited. They could only see 125 people, but it was 175 people on the waiting list that wanted to get in that couldn't. And the tickets were $75 a piece, you know, so that many people are interested in the Cotton Club because either they were there and I spoke. I said, how many people used to come to the Cotton Club? About 30 people raised their hands. And how many performed there? You know, four or five people raised their hands. You know, that actually performed at the Cotton Club. But the uh, the, uh, the next thing I'm looking for is somebody's going to do a documentary about the Cotton Club because they should. it was like, yeah, we said it was my, my, my thing was that you've been – Tonight you've been entertained at the 
Cotton Club at 2125 North Vancouver Avenue. It's the only nightclub on the West Coast with wall-to-wall soul. And then we're closing at night. I say, y'all don't have to go home, but you got to get out of here. And everybody would finish that stage <laughs> tonight. <laughs> hey, you it know, was great. The, it's interesting because you're such a personality, and you and I met years ago. You're unforgettable, Paul. And I hear so many stories from people who will talk about the Cotton Club or Geneva's, but I really think they're talking about you in Geneva. It, you guys were the business. Like Geneva probably sitting at the bar and Paul sitting at the door. But Geneva, uh, she was a barber, so she'd only come down mostly. I see she, weekends, you know, she'd come down and sit. And I remember one guy, uh, he, you know, he saw Geneva sitting there looking good. So he says, uh, told the bartender, would you give her a drink? And so the guy, you know, the bartender gave her a drink. Well, my my thing was Geneva. Geneva, whenever I offer you a drink, you buy him a drink back. That way, there's nothing, nothing, you know, it's, there's no nothing expected, you know. So he. Uh, then pretty soon, she, she, he says, he said, how you doing? She says, fine. And Geneva would always say, have you met my husband, Paul? And he looked around and he said, you Paul's wife? And Geneva says, yes. She said, well, what are you doing talking to me? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and she hadn't really talked to him. He was trying to, you know, hit on yeah. her yeah. by her drink. And when he found out, Geneva was mad. <laughs> We got people calling in who want to say something to you. Do you mind uh, taking a question or two? I'll be here as long as you need. John. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right, all right. Here, uh, here is uh, another Paul in Portland who who has a has a comment for you, Paul. Go ahead, Paul and Paul. Hey, Paul. Hello there. It's a, it's great to talk to you. My uh, father used to have season tickets. It was right in front of where you sat behind the basket, and uh, he always used to joke that uh, you were my namesake and it was always fun to to see you um, interact with. I remember during the shoot-arounds and warm-ups of the opposing teams, that was where the basket was before the game. It seemed like you knew a lot of the players, so I imagine they they frequented uh, your your uh, your bar. And uh, Anyway, you're just such a, a nice presence there. I've always wondered what became of you, and I'm, I'm just thrilled to death to, to hear your voice and to hear that you're doing well. Well, like I told John, I'm 92 and I got things to do. And <laughs> <laughs> reaction, that's the same reaction guy I get from everybody. Sometimes, if it's the right person or the right lady, I say I'm 92 and I got stuff to do. And boy, they just. <laughs> So this episode of the Bill Walton documentary, episode three, will be out next week. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pay careful attention to it, Paul, because I want to see, uh, you know, I want to see the scene there. And I think I think the whole Bill Walton thing is bringing back a lot of memories for people. Did you, did you have many interactions with Bill directly? Yes, uh, when Bill had the bone spur, he wasn't playing. That's how we became friends, uh, and he is a friend. You know, when he when a guy calls you on your birthday to say hello, I consider him a friend. You know, and uh, he uh, 
he was walking through the Lloyd Center with his bicycle, and I saw him, and I says, I went up, and I said, Bill, 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 I'm Paul Knowles. I own a nightclub and restaurant. I says, I know you're having trouble, you know, with the neighborhood and the neighbor places you go in, so here's my card. You come here, you can hang out, and nobody cares whether you play basketball or anything. And so one day, um, my barmaid, she, I was back in my office, and she called. She said, Paul, it's a big, tall, redhead guy out here, you know. <laughs> I got up and went out and said, Bill, Bill, welcome, welcome, welcome to bed. It's nice. So he he started coming in. So all the time that he was hurt, you know, he hung out at Geneva's. And uh, it was just uh, we had a dress code until Bill started coming to the place. And then all of my people, you know, started saying, how come, how come we have to dress up? And he don't have to dress up. So I had to drop <laughs> <laughs> I had to drop my dress code. <laughs> but he was always nice. He bought all of his, uh, you know, and that's when the backpack first came out, you know. And, yeah. you know, uh, I didn't allow any backpacks in the place because I don't know if they got a weapon in there or anything. You know, it was just you come dressed up and have a party. Well, Bill's people started bringing, they come in with their backpacks and everything, you know. And, but no one ever had any trouble. We never had any shootings or cuttings or anything. And, you know, so we, we, we. <laughs> I love that. Bill will tell a story about the the one that I told on on television about they would be out. The, I, I I go go early. I take my grandson early for the early practice, and they would all be bouncing the ball, bouncing, 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 bouncing. You know, and Harry Geneva walk in, and everybody stopped bouncing, and they would just watch her walk all the way around the stadium. And then she sit down. I give her a kiss, and she sit down. Then I would put both hands like I had two six shooters, and I go bang, you know. And the guys would just fall out laughing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the visiting players, I do that with the visiting players. And of course, they want to know who is that guy and who's that lady, and they tell them. So that's when they started coming to the club. I love that. I got a picture of Oscar Robinson sitting in my restaurant eating, you know. Dr. J been into the place. Daryl Dawkins, I I told my doorman, I says, I want that kid out of here. He's not 21, and he's not supposed to be here. And he says, which one? I said, the one in the corner, the big guy. I want him out of here. And he went over and looked. He come back. He said, he said I'm sorry, Paul. I have to quit. I said, he said, I can't put that big guy out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. And Daryl tipped Daryl tipped my my waitress fifty dollars in nineteen seventy seven a fifty dollar a ten dollar tip was big but if you tip somebody fifty dollars then she almost quit her job because she thought she was rich you know <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a week's salary you know <laughs> Paul I'm finally on today's show we started today's show by asking for people to give advice to young people, maybe people graduating high school or college, what advice would you give? Well, I can tell you because <clears throat> just a couple months ago, Roosevelt High School asked me to come out and I talked to 75 students, you know, as to what they should do, you know. And I told them about education, 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 and it doesn't have to be college. They have the uh, trade schools now. 
that are really doing a beautiful job with uh, uh, young men and especially African-American men. I told the young men, uh, you know, if you're riding with somebody that's got a weapon in the car, get out of that car. Don't be anywhere near that person, you know. And I said, because all at once, if you don't get an education, you're going to be 25. You're sleeping in your mother's basement on her couch, and your mother don't want you in her basement on her couch. (laughs) She wants you out of there. All the kids, boy, when I finished this, they just came up and they were taking pictures and getting autographs and everything. They said, we, no one's ever talked to us like that at a graduation. <laughs> I love it. So it's all about education, but it's not all about college because these trade schools now they have is just unbelievable, you know. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Hey, Paul, you call in anytime. Uh, I'll look forward to the documentary next week and, uh, and seeing you in episode three of the Bill Walton uh, documentary. Paul Knowles, he is the mayor of Northeast Portland. Paul, thank you, man. John, just one more thing. Yeah. 120, 124 Northeast Alberta. It's called Alberta Abbey. That's okay. where we're having the watch party, and there's going to be room for people to come. It starts at 5. Well, the doors open at 4, but we're going to start at 5 o'clock and have the question and answer section by some of the former trailblazers afterwards. So, should be a good, good party. 124 Northeast Alberta. All right, Paul, yes. thank yes. you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. All Hello right. to your lovely wife. We'll yes. see you later. All okay. right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. There's Paul Knowles. That's why you come to the show. June 5th, 1977, the anniversary of that passed uh, just a few days ago. I was. I thought about making a big deal about it. But I also think sometimes an anniversary like that is a reminder that you haven't won anything since June 5th of 1977. It was great to hear from Paul Knowles, the legendary mayor of Northeast Portland. 92 and things to do. He's got an unmistakable laugh. Stephen, have you heard him call in before or is this the first time? Um, I think this is the first time I've heard him call in because I, I didn't necessarily know who he was. And as he was talking, I was asking Judah about him a little bit. Then I started doing some research, but he was he was awesome. Like he was hilarious. Yeah. I, I love that guy. Love his stories. Anna, he has those stories down. He knows the stories. He's ninety two. He's sharp as a tack. I know. I mean his recall of the details and the dialogue and the fact that, you know, some of the stories he's told before and he's retelling them almost word for word. Yeah. And so that leads me to believe, you know, these are stories that he tells over and over again in such uh, impeccable detail. And, like, we can all only hope that we're that, you know, coherent oh, are you kidding me? and hilarious. Like, an incredible storyteller. And what's more for me as a kid that grew up in Portland, like, it fills my soul to hear him talk about Portland in that way. Yeah. Because... I wanted to ask him, and maybe maybe there will be an opportunity sometime. But it's like I want him. I want to know from him whether there's an opportunity for Portland to go back to that, the Portland that he described, that was so vibrant and lively. And you know, I think portions of the city are that way. Um, but he paints a picture that makes me incredibly hopeful that it was once that way. And maybe portions of it are still that way, and you know, there's a future in the city as well. I mean, it sounded yeah. magical, right? Like yeah. it sounded like yes. just a magical place. Sammy Davis Jr., Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber driving a car. Somebody's out of gas. He's pushing the car. Like you know, 
it's uh, it, the Sammy Davis Jr. story. The way he delivered the punchline. Oh, amazing. Sammy who? <laughs> <laughs> and he just, I'm glad that the, I'm glad that the Hillsboro Hops brought him out and oh, yeah. honored him. Yeah. I think the Blazers should do the same thing. And, he, you know, I've told him he can just call into the show whenever there's something on his mind. And he does not take advantage of it. He calls about twice a year. Yeah. And uh, I, lo- I can't wait to see that episode next week yeah. and see part of, uh, you know, part of the history of this city and this region. Really, really cool stuff. Um, well, and even yeah. now he's promoting a watch party, know, you know, know, like he's doing positive things to, again, bring people together after all these years. He still has that spirit in he, him. He had a life in the service and it, mm-hmm. put, it stationed him in Spokane. And as the story goes, he you know he ends there in Spokane. He goes to work at the Davenport Hotel. Mm-hmm. We we broadcast oh, yeah. this show from Downtown the Davenport Spokane. Yeah, we broadcasted from uh, there. I think a couple a couple of football seasons ago. We, yeah, we spent a few days doing radio shows from the Davenport. And then uh, he ends up in Portland, and then he ends up uh, you know owning the nightclub that he I guess hung out in, and then he owned two different clubs. So he had the Cotton Club, mm-hmm. he had Geneva's, and then they had the uh, hair salon, the, yeah. the beauty salon that was Geneva's, named after his wife. And then I, I just, I Googled him while he was doing the interview, and that photo of Sammy Davis Jr. and Geneva and Paul pops up. Yes. Geneva is stunning. She is. And she's at the center of the photo. <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr.'s off to one side, and Paul's off to the other side. But I think most people, when they look at the photo, are not going to see Sammy Davis Jr. in the photo. They're going to look at Geneva and be like, wow, what a stunning, striking woman. <laughs> and and uh, something tells me that that establishment, the Cotton Club in Geneva's, you know, he talks about it. It's like Camelot, right? There's yeah. a magic to it. But I think it's the people. You know, it's not the place because the, when they bought the place, it had bad carpet. It had bad walls. Nobody was hanging out there. It's Paul in Geneva that mm-hmm. made it the Cotton Club, mm-hmm. and it's Paul in Geneva that made it Geneva's. Yeah, yep, good stuff. It's the people. Yeah. So can we get that? Can we get the people back in Portland, or is that the problem? No, the people are there. Do, I, you know, I, I, it's, I just, I'm not comfortable saying that like Portland is trash. I think there are portions of the city that are vibrant and lively and and lovely the way that he even describes you know so it's just i think i think i think it's possible he gives me hope man that yeah. laugh of his that just goes on and on like that yeah you know we need more pauls i guess in the city right yes we need more people with that kind of spirit you know to to gather people in positive ways the five at five is coming up uh i, I saw a story that was out of queens new york Anna. it's not going to make your five at five but it was in the new york daily news that a family lost their dog, okay? They had a pet sitter was watching it, the dog got loose, they lost it. Mm. They five months later they decided to go to a pet adoption place to pick out a new dog. They're finally ready. And their dog is in the pet adoption no place. No way. Yes. It it was in the New York uh, Daily News today. So they got they got reunited with their dog. That's a good story, right? Yeah. That's a positive. Yes. That's a win. All right. I wonder what that dog saw on its journey. The, the dog was like, where have you been? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the About hell? About time. What the hell is going on? <laughs> All right. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Plus, author Eric Gray will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour to talk about his new book. Uh, leave it here. you got the bald face truth. Well, we started the show by talking about advice 
for college, high school graduates. We do it every year this time. We've had some good discussion, weave throughout the show. A lot of good listener input as well. I asked the question on uh, on the Bald Face Truth Foundation, uh, excuse me, the Bald Face Truth Radio Show Facebook page, and uh, had a lot of uh, positive and interesting interesting uh, viewpoints. Anna's going to do the five at five, but Eric, who posted on the uh, Facebook page, Anna said, "Mrs. Anna C always has the best life advice and most positive life advice." Oh, jeez! So that's up to you. I, I can't wait to hear what your advice is. Um, Dick Davis says, "Work hard and enjoy the people around you." There you go. Um, also, uh, another guy put a whole speech on there about patience and persistence. Uh, some people just said, don't be lazy. <laughs> Thomas said, trust your gut. Al said, plastics. <laughs> what? <laughs> plastics? Charles made a good point. He says, if college is not for you, look into a trade school. Mm-hmm. Trades are not going away, and you can make great money. Eric says, experiences are more valuable than items. Anna, do you have some life advice for graduates? Before the 5 at 5 or after the 5 at 5? Let's do it after. All right, after the 5 at 5. Uh, because we're closer to 501, Anna's going to give us the 501. No, the 5 at 501. Here we go. The 5 at 5. Anna's number one story is? Well, with USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten, the conference is sharing, uh, you know, just how these West Coast schools are going to fit into the conference their first season and their home and away opponents. Pretty interesting. Uh, Intact are the major rivalries still, like Michigan-Ohio State, Minnesota-Wisconsin, and UCLA-USC. But this first year that they play will have matchups in Southern California. So Michigan will play at Southern California. It's funny because this article with USA Today keeps calling it Southern California. Right. And it's... I don't know why that's so funny. To All me. the snowbirds are going to come out for the games. <laughs> and then Ohio State will play at USC. Uh, so those will be big. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just I'm curious, you know, how this is all going to work out. Uh, looks like Illinois will play at Southern California. Uh, Indiana will play UCLA at home. It'll just, I think there's a, there's a lot of us on the West Coast that'll watch these games just out of curiosity to see I, how it all shakes out. I think it's really interesting that they, first of all, they created protected matchups. And USC and UCLA is a protected matchup. So they will play each other every year. UCLA, USC. Michigan and Ohio State will play each other every year. Michigan, Michigan State play each other every year. So those rivalries are going to be protected. But I find it interesting that USC's initial Big Ten schedule for 2024 gives them Michigan at home, and they do not play Ohio State. UCLA, meanwhile, plays Ohio State at home and plays Michigan. But it feels to me like USC in that first year got a little bit of protection, not having to play Ohio State in the regular season. So USC's first Big Ten schedule in 2024 will be Illinois, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, all of those at home. Maryland, Northwestern, Penn State, Purdue, UCLA on the road. I think UCLA's got a tougher schedule in that first year because they play Minnesota, Nebraska, Northwestern, Ohio State, USC at home. 
They have Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, and Rutgers on the road. Um, By the way, both of the newcomer schools will play every Big Ten school at least once by the end of 2025. So uh, they're doing a good job of trying to balance it. But, but uh, are they though? Yeah. I also yeah. like I also like the fact that they give Ohio State, Michigan, of course, you know that yeah. that's the rival. But then the other two protecteds, Illinois and Northwestern, not yeah. two of the powerhouses. You know, give Ohio State two easy matchups every year. I, I think that, you know, good for the Big Ten. You'll get Ohio yeah. State those wins. They are uh, they are priming Ohio State and I think Michigan and USC as their their three favorites. Keep an eye on that. See how happy UCLA is after about five years of getting their teeth kicked in. All right, number two. Go ahead, Anna. NBA is uh, considering uh, an all-star game that features USA versus international players. I love it. According to Adam Silver. He says it's not a new idea. It's come up, and before they thought it would be an imbalance, not because of the competition on the floor, but in fairness to the players, but even now, as it continues to grow, where more than 25% of the NBA players are born outside the U.S., they're saying they're going to figure out a way to make this work. They've got to talk to the Players Association, obviously, uh, but the game's becoming more global. And he's mentioning, you know, another international MVP. So they're, they're really, I think they're trying hard to market the NBA globally. Yeah, they are, obviously. But the All-Star Game's lost its luster. It's become a joke. And I have to think they looked over at the World Baseball Classic and saw how successful that event was. I loved it. It was the United States, you know, against some other countries that, you know, are great in baseball. And it really did feel like a festival of baseball and a tournament. And, you know, when the U.S. was playing Japan in that final, it was a big deal. And so I kind of think, like, you look at that, you got a rooting interest if you're an American in that game or a foreign country. You're right that they're going to capture foreign audiences with this event. But the the All-Star game, East versus West, draft your team, has become a big joke. And I, and I think this is a good movement. And I, I support this. We've talked about this. When the World Baseball Classic was, was on and – by the way, the World Baseball Classic is run by Major League Baseball and the Players Association. And the idea is that it's, you know, this is supposed to be for the good of the game. I think this could be for the good of the game in basketball. I'd like to see it. Number three, what do you got? Well, we keep talking about NFL players getting caught or at least investigated for gambling. Most recently, Isaiah Rogers of the Colts. Uh, so what have they done? According to Nine News in Colorado, they are enlisting the help of Tom Brady. Oh, boy. To be a spokesman in an educational video. Don't do drugs. Just don't do it. The league (laughs) has elected to circulate a video to its players reiterating its policy on sports wagering. Uh, Nine News is saying that he's taped an introduction for the NFL's gambling video. It's required to be shown at each team facility as part of regularly scheduled sessions on wagering rules. Gambling seminars are required to be held by each team at rookie minicamp and later in the summer at training camp. Brady will talk about in the video how betting on games hurts the integrity of the league and the reputation of the teams and implores the players to do the right thing and follow gambling policy. Oh, I love it. I can't, I can't get it out without – I don't know why I'm laughing. Why am I so cynical about this? Do you think that that players will are more prone to listen to Brady, or do you think because Brady's the face of it, 
everybody notices it. And, the, it, you know, it's like he's the billboard for the NFL. Like, you're posting this on Tom Brady's forehead, everyone will see it. Or is it that he's so influential that if he says it, people are inclined to go, you know, I shouldn't be gambling. What do you think? I don't think he's going to change anyone's behavior, really. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that can take shots at Brady and say, wait, you're having him tell us not to cheat? Yeah. I, I don't know. What do you think? I think Michael Jordan had a, had a gambling issue when he was playing. Yeah. And, you know, I think gambling is happening. I think it's just funny that the leagues are in business with gambling entities and also now struggling with a problem that they invited in the door. So, you know, what's here's the NFL's stance on gambling. This is from 2019 um, when they were kind of talking about, like, hey, we're making some we're you know gambling partnerships with the NFL. We got to have some ground rules. From the time I started producing games in 1990, it's always written in the TV contracts that talking of gambling is not allowed. So we've always had that kind of restriction. So that's why Al was talking about the side doors. We've had conversations with the league this year, and there really hasn't been any you know certain course of direction. But we're starting to have those conversations about what is possible going forward. That's Fred Goodell talking about the NFL's stance on gambling. Here's Mike Florio, Pro Football Talk. Uh, again, this is back in 2019 when the partnerships became uh, apparent and obvious. If it's there to address clear and obvious errors, then so be it. I mean, we all want to have satisfaction that these games are being decided by the players, not by bad calls from the officials. So I think it was smart for the NFL to get ahead of this as we get, you know, toward a dozen states. And there's going to be 20, there's going to be 30, there's going to be 40 that have legalized gambling in the coming years. Yeah, we're having all these conversations that had tentacles. That's about officiating and gambling and why it's important to get the calls right. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, here's Pat Fitzgerald uh, finally talking about gambling when it, uh, when it pertains, as it pertains to college and pro sports. First and foremost, important that we educate our guys in the understanding of the issues that surround gambling, you know, and understand from a standpoint of what may end up happening to them in dorms, people asking them questions that maybe they've never been asked before, these new instant friends that they have, uh, as true freshmen, things of that nature. So the education piece is going to be really important. Finally, Charles Barkley. Legal gambling is like legal pot. I feel the same way about gambling I feel about pot. Uh, I don't smoke pot. I smoked pot probably five, time, five times in my life, and all it did was make me want to eat potato chips. Uh, I don't even know what it means. It just means a bunch of rich guys and the government going to make a lot more money. Uh, that's that's all it means. I mean, the government, man, as much as I love this country, and it's a great country, even though we got some issues, it's kind of like the marijuana thing. I mean, they, it used to be illegal. They put all these guys in jails who probably shouldn't be in jail. Now they make a lot of money on it. And now they're just going to make a lot of money on gambling. So that's the way I look at it, to be honest with you, my brother. All right. Uh, in addition to that, Charles, you got some players who are in trouble, and now Tom Brady's become the face of it. <laughs> Where are we going next? Number four. Let's talk about Ellie De La Cruz, 21-year-old, fifth player in Major League Baseball history to record a second base, a third base, and a home run within his first two career games. And it's so cute because the local high school football player who caught the home run gave it back to him, bruise on his palm from the 458-foot yep. home run, but got uh, 
Got some, got some nice love. Should out he have of it. sold the ball? Here is the interview with the kid who caught that first home run ball. So we were up at the top, and I didn't think it was going to come because we were at the very top. And then when I saw it like coming, I was like, oh, oh crap, it's coming. And then that's when I put my hands out and it hit my hand. And at first I thought I caught it, and then I saw it bounce away. So I started going, trying to go catch it. So, yeah. What does an Ellie De La Cruz home run feel like on your bare hand? That's crazy. It hurt. It hurt a lot. Right here. That little bruise. There's a bruise, I think. Got the bruise to show for it. Congrats to Ellie De La Cruz on that homer. Congrats to Alex French on catching that homer and getting the ball back to Ellie. He got the ball back to Ellie. Should he have sold the ball? We talked about this earlier. Should he have held out for $50,000, $100,000, or was it the right thing to give the ball back? I think he was the right thing to give it back. I mean, he got his moment. He got a photo. Got a, a baseball bruise. player. He got a bruise and a got photo. A bat out of it. I don't uh, know. I don't know. It's the, it's not the American way, but I actually kind of respect it because too many people looking to capitalize on moments like that. Finally, number five, Anna. What do you have? Uh, therapy dogs could wind up being the X factor for women's college World Series finalists, Oklahoma and FSU. Okay. Uh, I love this story. Uh, there's therapy dogs that are. Uh, making their way through the teams. Uh, it's a group called A New Leash on Life. And uh, the group shows up at, like, you know, hotel lobbies and wherever the teams are staying. And they just kind of hang out. Like, the guy with the, the group says these teams are leaving home, their place of comfort. It's stressful being a student. And this helps them just kind of take their mind off of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it's pretty nice. And it turns out that um, the teams that actually visited with the dogs, yeah, like there's a dog named Ripley. Uh -huh. uh, so far, they've all done well. So, like, the dog seems to be the X factor, the lucky charm. It could be the dogs. It could also be <laughs> Nicole May and Jordan Ball, who are fantastic pitching for Oklahoma. Their ERAs this season, 0 0.91 and 0 0.92. And Florida State's got McKenna Reed, who's at 0 0.97, and Catherine Sandercock, who is at 1.05. Those are, those are phenomenal ERAs before the therapy dogs walked into the equation. Is it possible that therapy dogs gravitate towards great pitchers? That must be it. All yeah. I know is the three teams that Ripley visited this year were yeah. Washington, Florida State, and Oklahoma. They all played well. And they all played well. They pitched it, too. Lights out. Oklahoma's got the better <laughs> pitching staff. Who's going to win the Women's College World Series? Oklahoma? Florida State? I, I, I'm, I'm guessing Oklahoma. Oklahoma is supposed to be the uh, team. They led the country in hitting, led the t country in, in uh, pitching. Mm -hmm. That's pretty good as far as my view. Yeah. That's the five at five, five biggest stories uh, going on in sports. Tom Brady as the face of anti-gambling. Steven. Your immediate reaction to that. If the NFL is making Brady the spokesperson for don't gamble if you're playing, does that register? Uh, no, I don't think it registers. I think it's pretty corny. I think the fact that they're suspending people for the season and we'll see what happens to Isaiah Rogers if he gets banned for life. Uh, I think that's more of a uh, message to people not to gamble than old Tom Brady out there telling you not to do it. Why do you think players gamble? They, they're making great salaries. But we see this in sports. You see Phil Milkison putting a big, a big wager on a you know college football game, and you'll see Floyd Mayweather betting on a 
on a basketball game or, or, or Drake on an NBA Finals game. Why do celebrities who don't really need the money, why are they gambling? I think it's uh, the competitiveness for the athletes, I think, at least. like it's, it's a way to say, you know what, I read this game correctly and I'm, I'm right about it. And then we like to boast about how smart we are and how much money we've won off of it when it's really not that much money if, you know, just a random person like me betting on games and I'm winning a lot of money. But I like to say, hey, you know what? I bet and I, this is what I thought and I'm right about it. So I think it's competitiveness. Um, I also think that some of the celebrity endorsers are just endorsing and it's yes. just for advertising. And it's They're getting trying, paid. Yeah, it's They're trying, getting paid to say they put the wager down. Exactly. I think, you know, the Money Mayweather, Mattress Mac, like they aren't real gamblers, even though they want to portray themselves as being that type of person, but that they're not. Like if you read into their stories, you know, Mattress Mac is betting millions of dollars. He literally can't lose on his bets because, you know, he has insurances uh, out of all everything. So like, I just think that they're trying to get people – to be, uh, you know, bet more and lose more so they make more money. I think that's a good point. Um, what about the kid who caught the home run ball? I'm still stuck on this. Do you have, like, okay, from a soulful, hey, the spirit of baseball, I'm glad he gave the ball back and didn't extort, you know, Ellie De La Cruz for five figures or put it on, you know, Sotheby's auction house and try to sell it and get it insured or get an escort out of the stadium. So I do think there's something redeeming about it, but don't you think the Reds should have gave more than a bat in a picture with L.A. De La Cruz? Like, you know, a pair of season tickets? Like, can they give him a pair of season tickets where, like, in the seats he caught the ball? Like, you know, they weren't great seats. Yeah, he was at the very top of the bleachers. Like, he's lucky. Say, so you got that seat for the rest of the season, buddy. Yeah, it's lucky De La Cruz is very strong and can hit the ball over there. Like, I think, you know, they're lucky that way. Yeah, I, I you know, because I think – you know, as a guy who's starting to get into, you know, memorabilia and, like, trading cards and stuff like that, I don't know what I would do. I would want to think I would give it back to him, but I also think, well, maybe I want to make some money off of this because money is uh, is fun. I like to have money. It's it's more it's better than life when you have money. Uh, speaking of advice for people, uh, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, John, but it can definitely help, and that's, uh, that's some advice for you. I've been uh, looking uh, on uh, TikTok, and Anna, you're going to give some life advice here. And I saw this one little, uh, this little thing that was from nurses who work in hospice, and they were talking mm. about the things that their patients say they wish they would oh, have wow. done. Yeah, patients are never say, you know, I wish I would have worked more. Yeah. they don't talk about things. They talk about um, the time they wasted, the relationships that they wish they would have continued to foster. They talk about their children and their families. It's the stuff that we all know is obvious, and yet a lot of us spend time doing other things and investing in other things. On that note, Anna, wearing a camouflage blouse today that she wore to field day, <laughs> uh, tell us your life advice for, for kids or college students. Oh, boy. Um, well, I think I think it's really easy to get overwhelmed um, for kids who are looking at their whole life ahead of them, you know, whether it's picking what college they're going to or where, what they're doing after high school, if it doesn't have to be college, um, or kids that are graduating from college and, you know, heading into the next round, it can, it can be too much to try and like map out your whole life plan at 18 or 22 years old. So I think the best thing to do is just to try it one step at a time, like do the next smart, wise thing and how do you figure out what the next smart wise thing might be for me personally that's always been asking 
um, grownups that I admire and respect, maybe people in the profession that I want to go into, sit down, make them go to lunch with you. Hmm. Don't be afraid to be a gadfly and be like, hey, what are the mistakes that you made that you think people my age should avoid? What are the things that you did right? It's part of the reason I love reading autobiographies and biographies because people you know, their lives are laid out that way and the things that, you know, happened along their journeys. You're talking a little bit about mentorship, too, and finding, you know, somebody who has lived longer or wiser than yeah. yourself and just listening to them. Yes. I think that's important stuff. Thanks for that. Uh, Eric Gray is an author. He's written a book. It's called Backyards to Ballparks. He's going to be in Portland uh, doing a meet and greet, signing his book at McMenamin's Broadway Pub. Uh, on Northeast Broadway. He's joining us next to talk about his book, why he wrote it, and the stories that he's uh, heard along the way. Leave it here. Well, you know I grew up in a baseball family. My dad played professional baseball. I grew up knowing and loving and playing baseball. It's got a, uh, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for baseball. There is uh, sort of a rhythm to the game that uh, that uh, uh, sort of invites conversation and uh, good storytelling and and it's interesting with the pitch clock coming into baseball I find that um, I wonder what Vin Scully would have done with the pitch clock really because you've got Vin Scully who is so good with telling stories over the years and so good like you know I'll just give you an example like you know here here's a little Vin Scully talking about why why the uh, uh, why baseball players did and did not wear beards. I'm not going to do it now because there's two out and the base is empty, but sometime during the game, if you've been like the way I have been, looking at players with these big beards, I decided I'm going to do a little research on beards. So during the game, yeah, there's plenty of them around. We'll tell you a couple of stories as we go through it. Two down, second inning, no score. Now, Scully goes on for the next four and a half minutes to tell stories about beards between the pitches. I kind of wonder, with the pitch clock, what happens to storytelling in baseball. But our next guest has written a book, Backyards to Ballparks, that may help fill in the blank. What's your favorite memory connected to baseball? It's a simple question. Eric Gray is an author. He's coming to Portland to talk about his book. Uh, Eric, welcome to the program. John, thank you so much for making time. You bet. Like, give me an idea. Like, what what was the spark that said to you, hey, I need to write this? Yeah, I wish I could say it was something profound, but it was actually pretty simple. I was at a ball game with my wife and my daughter and a friend. And, you know, as you kind of alluded to, there's something about the pace of the game that enables you to just relax, look out the field. And in my case, surprisingly, I was just thinking, and I'd ask them, what's your favorite game that you've ever been to? And they gave me their answers. And then I went ahead and asked a whole bunch of friends. And it was, frankly, the story. Uh, I, one of the friends I asked on an email is someone who likes baseball less than anybody I've ever known. And I included him in this email chain just to give him a hard time because that's what we do with each other. And his story was so personal and so intense. It's the only game he'd ever been to. But that gave me the spark for writing this book. I knew I knew that I had to do it. Eric, uh, you know, you're coming to Portland. You're going to sign books and tell stories with people and share laughs. Uh, this will be taking place 
Wednesday, June 14th, next Wednesday, 4 o'clock, meet and mingle at McMiniman's Broadway Pub on uh, Northeast Broadway. But give people an idea. This book's uh, available in bookstores, available on Amazon. Um, You know, as you write the book, do you find yourself, you know, gravitating towards more stories, or how do you organize a book like this? That's a really interesting question. Um, It took eight years from the time I asked that question until I put my first book out. My first book is called Bases to Bleachers, which, by the way, is the name of the website, basestobleachers.com. And the reason it took so long is because I kept getting greedier and greedier, wanting more and more stories, because the kinds of stories I got just amazed me. I mean, I I was not prepared for the kinds of things I was going to get from people. It wasn't like I went to a, a ball game and it was a triple play. I mean, if you tell me that, that's great. If you tell me you were at Hank Aaron's 715th home run, that's great. But if that's all you tell me, there's no story there. There's nothing that would make somebody want to read a book of stories like that. Um, By the time I did my first book, uh, I had 1,200 stories from around the world. There are 15 countries represented in that first book. And what happened was it just became a question of how to chapter it and as we say here in California, it kind of happened organically. As the stories came, as I looked at them, I realized that they really, in many cases, not all, they fell into very neat chapters. You know, my time on the field, which was about people not playing in a game, but but they were on the field in a major league game and why, or, you know, not quite the major leagues. Um, the most important chapters um, involved family. It was called generation to generation, family in baseball. And the other one is what baseball means to me because I realized uh, in reading these stories that for many, many people, baseball was a lot more than just, oh, I really love this game. I mean, for some people, they just thought it was absolutely critical part of their life and in a couple of cases even feel like baseball saved their life. One of the stories in the book is about it involves Hank Aaron in a in a music uh, mixtape. Can you share Correct. that one with us? Yeah, um, and this is a, a it's a great example for me to give on for many reasons. This is written by a guy Scott Goldman who um, I met through this project. He was on a baseball Facebook group, and I just wrote him a message and I said. I'm writing this book. Do you have a story you'd want to contribute? And he gave me the story. Now, I'll explain the story in a minute, but the reason this is so important is because Scott and I have become very close personal friends. Uh, we've only seen each other three or four times, but we have just become very close friends. His story is about um, wanting to send Hank Aaron. He knew Hank Aaron loved music. And he wanted to send him a mixtape because Scott was a was a DJ at the time. Interestingly, I was a DJ in college um, around the same time. And he just sent this tape to Hank Aaron, who got it and wound up, you know, it's kind of a long story. I'm obviously going to kind of uh, make it brief here. And the two of them were in touch for a while. And Scott was in Atlanta for business. And he spent some time with uh, with with Hank and um it's just an amazing story. The reason he wanted to do that tape is because he wanted Hank Aaron to know that, well, how do I put this intelligently, that not everybody was a racist. Because Scott was mm-hmm. talking about how he just couldn't believe the kinds of things that Hank Aaron was 
you know, had to endure um, as he was, you know, on the road to, to breaking Babe Ruth's record. Our guest, Eric Gray, he's written a book. It is called um, The uh, Backyards to Ballparks, More Personal Baseball Stories from the Stands and Beyond. Give me an idea. Like, I, I, don't get the, I don't get the impression that you have to love baseball to, to love the stories because some of the stories aren't really about baseball. They're about relationships and families. I would say I would say the the large number of stories are not about play of game. You're correct. Um, you don't have to love baseball to love this book. You don't have to love baseball to have a story in the book. I mean, there are people in that have stories in this book that aren't baseball fans. They just happen to love the game. And one of the stories in the first book, and I always talk about this one um, because it was really uh, critical in terms of how I put the book together. I spent my career working for Job Corps, and for those of you who live in the Portland area, there's a Job Corps center um, in Springdale, and there's one in Astoria. And uh, a friend of mine who I had mentored, um, we had lost touch, and I got back in touch with her when we were visiting family in Minneapolis, and she said, I don't really have a story for you. I don't really like they I don't know baseball very well. Her story was basically about meeting a guy in a bar while she was waiting for her friend, having a great conversation with this guy, and when her friend came, she said to this, to this man, I really enjoyed talking to you. We didn't exchange names. My name is Sarah. And he said, it's nice to meet you, Sarah. My name is Ernie Banks. And she had no idea who that was. And, um, you know, the long and short of it is when her friend told her, oh, my God, don't you know who that is? You've got to get his autograph. Sarah went up to Ernie and said, well, you must have been some great basketball player. Um, so... You know, um, you know, Sarah likes baseball, but she doesn't care about it that much. And that story was so important because it helped me realize that I had to make the structure of the book fit my content, not cramming my content into some predetermined structure. You, you are uh, an East Coast guy who's found some love for the West Coast. You're a Giants fan. We have that in common. Um, you know, I, I grew up on, uh, you know, sort of the Robbie Thompson, Will Clark Giants. But before that, it was Johnny LeMaster and Mike Ivey, and they weren't very good. But they were my team, and it was Candlestick Park. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes when I think about base, good baseball stories and great fans, I don't think about the winners. I think about the fans who were loyal and were there and followed their teams, that, you know, like Cubs fans did. Right, right. Um, I'm a Giants fan. I'm also a Mets fan because I am from New York, and I, I won't go through my rather um, uh, confusing uh, uh, baseball lineage. But my first, and this is in the introduction to my first book, it, it was about taking my kids to their first game when, um, when Rachel was eight and David was four, and Rachel brought about 200,000 books with her because she knew she'd be really bored. She never read a single um a single word. The only thing she read was a scorecard that I bought in the scoreboard. And six years later, at the age of 14, she started working for the Giants in guest services and still does. And, you know, uh, Mike Kruko and Dwayne Kuyper, the great Giants announcers, they love her to death. And um, and here's this girl who just thought she'd be bored, who's become a lifelong baseball fan. Love that. I love that. Eric, what are you going to do at the event coming up next Wednesday because, uh, you know, people will show up and, again, it's Wednesday, next Wednesday, 4 o'clock, McMenamin's Broadway Pub on Northeast Broadway. Eric will be there to share some stories. But you know, what kind of format do you, will you have for the event? 
Yeah, this is a, a different one, and I'm really kind of excited about it. Your friend and mine, George, set this up. Um, usually I do a little talk about how the book came together, chaptering it, how I went through collecting stories, and then I read stories for, you know, 45 minutes or so. George is doing this in more of, a, of an interview format. I mean, he's going to ask me a bunch of questions, which is great because they really – in some ways align pretty closely with the kinds of things I talk about in my introduction. And I'll read stories for about 20 minutes or so. I mean, so that people that are there can get a sense of, of what the book is about. Um, the book, uh, the stories, you know, run the gamut from being just absolutely hilarious to being um, tear inducing. I mean, you know, one of and these are from the first book, but, you know, one of the stories, I mean, everybody knows about the movie The League of Their Own. Um, I'm guessing most people know that it was based on a real league. Well, I got a story in the first book from a woman who played in that league, Maybelle Blair. And I was lucky enough to meet her a couple of months ago in Phoenix at a baseball conference. Um, so I'll be reading stories that really run the gamut of what I think this book is. And, you know, if there was a tagline for a book like, you know, like you have for a movie, it would be these are stories that make you laugh, tear up, and remember. Um, I'm probably going to start, George and I were talking about this yesterday, we'll probably start reading, uh, we'll start our, our the program about uh, 20 to 5, so people will get there between 4 and 4.15, have a chance to talk and grab a bite to eat or a drink or something, and I'll start about about 4.40. Eric, I really appreciate you giving us some of your time for people interested in the book. You can find it on Amazon, Backyards to Ballparks, by Eric Gray. Eric, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, John. Can I just say one more thing, please? Yeah, yes, go ahead. The books are available online. If anybody wants a, um, a signed copy for me, for what that's worth, I mean, I'm not Stephen King famous, but you can contact me through the website, basestobleachers.com. Or my email address, which is, it's long, but it's simple. It's eric.baseballstories at gmail. If anybody wants to get a, a copy of the book like that, it's my pleasure. And, of course, I will have them available next Wednesday. And thank you, Thank Eric. you, John, for making yeah, time for me today. I appreciate it. Good stuff there from Eric Gray. I love the storytelling. Vin Scully finishes his story on Beards. I'll play that coming up. And I do wonder about the pitch clock in baseball. Like, I think it's good. It speeds the games up. That's great. But I kept thinking, like, a byproduct that nobody thought about was probably uh, a couple things. Like, uh, you know, broadcasters, are they less important now? Storytelling during games, is that going the way, you know, going away? I don't know. It's not like they're cutting the games down to nothing, but I can't see Vince Scully operating on a pitch clock. Leave it here. Vince Scully, one of the best ever. One of the best ever. I love uh, I love baseball. I love baseball broadcasters. I love a sunny, warm day and uh, a baseball game on in the background. And uh, Vince Scully, nobody better. But I, you know, with the pitch clock, I have wondered: are we uh, are we treading into territory where we're messing with the broadcasters, or not? Maybe I'm wrong. But you tell me. Listen to this clip: Vince Scully explaining uh, beards. He noted uh, a couple few years ago that a bunch of players in the league had these massive beards. And uh, it started this conversation. Again, there's two outs when this is happening. Keep that in mind because if you are a uh, baseball person, you know, Scully kind of talks about the beginning of this thing like, hey, there's two outs. I'm not going to have time to tell this story. 
and then listen to what happens. We'll tell you a couple of stories as we go through it. Two down, second inning, no score. And first pitch, fastball, first right. First of all, they say way back to the dawn of humanity, beards evolved, number one, because ladies liked them. And number two, it was the idea of frightening off adversaries and wild animals. Here's the one strike pitch swung on and missed strike two. In fact, it was so serious, if you look it up, there's a divine mandate for beards in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. No balls and two strikes, they count. Stripling from the first base side of the rubber. Strike two pitch to Norris as Pompey hit into right field, and it lands in front of Kike for a base hit. So Norris, a two-out single to right, and that will bring up Jamile Weeks. Weeks. There became a time where Greek dramatists mined the popular prejudice against clean-shaven men. Back then, clean-shaven men were looked as the, oh, maybe effeminate. And then along came Alexander the Great. That's another story. Alexander the Great was not only great, but he also thought he was the greatest looking man in the world. Oh, absolutely. Stripling ready, delivers, gets a strike. And Alexander the Great said, there is no reason to cover up my beautiful face with a beard. And so all of a sudden, it started to disappear. I love the idea that he felt he was so beautiful. One, one strike, Stripling ready, looks over at Norris, back to the hitter, and that's lined into left field for a base hit. Norris goes to second. So back-to-back -back base hits with two out, and the batter will be Adam Rosales. After Alexander the Great wanted clean-shaven people, it got so that the University of Paris banned long-bearded men from the lecture halls. That's back in 1533. And a few years later, the city's chief court outlawed beards on judges and advocates. And then you got to be the Russian strongman who liked a shaved face but long wigs. The first pitch in for a strike. Did you know that the first woman female king of Egypt wore a fake beard to convince people that she was a man. Yeah, her name was Hathsput. Here's the strike one pitch on the way. Stripling's pitch in the dirt, throw down at Utley, not in time. One ball and one strike to count. Then, of course, you come to Abraham Lincoln, who was clean-shaven and a little 11-year-old girl named Grace Bedell, she said to Mr. Lincoln, if you would grow a beard, my daddy has a beard, and my mother will tease him to vote for you. So Abraham Lincoln grew a beard. And, of course, that came up when uh, his chief rival said to him, you're two-faced. And Abraham Lincoln said, if I were two-faced, would I have the face that I'm wearing now? So he answered him pretty well. Two and one to count. 
Stripling in a little trouble here. The 2 1 pitch on the way is taken for a strike, 2 and 2. In 1976, the Supreme Court ruled that Americans do not have a legal right to grow beards or mustaches as they choose if their employer demands a clean face. Ah, yes, the beards. Here's the 2-2 pitch on the way. Stripling set over the top, pitches low, ball three. There's Vin Scully uh, with two outs, doing what Vin Scully could do so well. Uh, great broadcasters in baseball. Scully, uh, maybe the best of all time in telling stories. And I and I only bring that up because I keep thinking about the pitch clock. I think it's I think there's some positive byproducts. I've really enjoyed kind of seeing it. You know, you're seeing pitchers adjust, hitters adjust. It's fine. We're not seeing the the uh, the uh, uproar that we saw in spring training or in the early part of the season, and in that that respect, uh, you know, it's largely probably been good for baseball. I think at this point, we have to acknowledge that you know the returns now are hey yeah it's speeding up the game hey yeah it's great for this, but I I want to I still want to see a full season of this, and I still want to see if baseball will adjust at all to uh, what has happened on the field. Still, I'm left thinking about. Ben Scully, I'm left thinking about, you know, Harry Carey. I'm left thinking about all those uh, great broadcasters who told stories between pitches, and I'm thinking, gosh, is that lost, or is the art changed, or do you have to speed up the story? Is, isn't it more of the fact that it's it's programmed to TV rather than radio now? Like, they're trying mm-hmm. to cater to the product so it looks better on TV rather than what they care about it would be on radio. Because on radio – it's great to hear these stories. We're on TV. They don't need to tell the stories. They want the game to get going. They want you to watch the game. They want you to, they want to sell commercials. They want to get to the break, you know, or they want to put a scrolling commercial that they can sell uh, in the background of the broadcast. You know, I think, you know, look around when you're watching your games. You know, you watch a college football game. What do you see? You see the, the insurance company and the hands on the back of the net, right? You know, it, it, maybe you don't notice it in the course of the game, but it's there. Um, you know, I've been talking to somebody about – that kind of advertising, and I and I found out I'm writing a piece on this, so I'll I'll give the uh, listeners who are listening a little bit of foreshadow. But you know, you know when you go when you watch a college football game and you see them put the nets up, and you see that you know all state good hands uh, thing that's on the net, you know all states paying for that, but the broadcast is also getting some of that revenue, not just the stadium. So anything that appears on the broadcast is uh, resulting in revenue for the broadcasters as well. You have to cut ESPN. You have to cut Fox or whoever's broadcasting that game in on the deal. But you're right. TV is driving the bus on all of this. And I do think, like, sometimes, you know, they're simulcasting the television announcement on, on uh, you know, on uh, radio. And in some cases, too, they have just altogether gone all in with the investment on TV and, and aren't investing in great radio broadcast anymore. Uh, here's Harry Carey, between pitches, talking Cracker Jacks. I know what the big deal about Cracker Jack is. Did you ever go buy a pack of Cracker Jack thinking you'd get a prize and find no prize <laughs> in the box? Here's the pitch. That might not sound important to some people, but when, you, when you're a little kid, especially from humble origin, and they cheat you out of a prize... There's a bouncing ball. Second baseman has the Barbary over the first. 
it's hard to think in laudatory terms of the product. <laughs> I Too think if there was an occasional box of Cracker Jacks that found no prizes for uh, the, the, for the little Harry Carey many years ago. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> that boy when a box of Cracker Jack to me meant a lot of money. Here's a pitch bounce foul. That's the most asinine marketing I've ever heard of. One ball, one strike. These guys say, well, you you sing about Cracker Jack. I said that I only sing it because it's in the song. Here's a pitch foul back. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised, even to this day, some youngsters who buy a box of Cracker Jack don't find a prize in the box. One ball, two strikes, two out. Well, if you're going to talk about our congressman being crooked, here's a pitch foul out of play. Why not talk about commercial products that don't do what they represent to do? Harry Carey right there. So Vin Scully and Harry Carey, I gave you both. I kind of wonder uh, where it's going with broadcasting and play-by-play. we got a great show for you tomorrow. Grab a podcast of today's show. Thanks to our guests, including Peyton Pritchard.